Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2014 Circle of Film Awards in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's super califragilistic, expialidocious. What is this? That's right, we are here. It is time to award the best in film in 2014. I'm really excited. Um, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of a lot of great movies to discuss and talk about, and uh, I can't wait to get into it. Before we do, I uh, just want to, you know, kind of help set the stage a little bit, and um, you know, like I always do, by running down some of the most popular films of the year, just to give everyone an idea of you know what was happening, what was coming out, what were the big names, what was going on, um, and. Uh, I might not do this uh, for the next couple of years, but it'll come back eventually um, because, you know, I don't, I don't know why. It just uh, a little, little interesting aspect to things. So, according to Letterboxd, the most popular 2014 film is Guardians of the Galaxy, Marvel's space comedy uh, action-adventure movie, uh, sort of tops the charts there, followed by another sci-fi film, Interstellar. Um, you've got Grand Budapest Hotel, Whiplash, Gone Girl, Birdman, Ex Machina, Nightcrawler, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Kingsman the Secret Service, Boyhood, It Follows, John Wick, X-Men, Days of Future Past, The Lego Movie, The Imitation Game, Big Hero 6, remember that one, Edge of Tomorrow, or Live, Die, Repeat, I prefer Edge of Tomorrow, What We Do in the Shadows, The Babadook, Inherent Vice, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, The Theory of Everything, and The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies were some of the biggest movies. I'm just going to pick and choose a couple of the others here. American Sniper, Amazing Spider-Man 2, Foxcatcher, The Interview, uh, this was Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, 22 Jump Street, Neighbors, The Fault in Our Stars, How to Train Your Dragon 2, Selma, Paddington, the first Paddington came out this year, um, but there's not going to be, we don't know that there's going to be a sequel yet, it's only 2014, uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, Divergent, Noah, Still Alice, Into the Woods, what else do we have, Wild Tales, The uh, Force Majeure, Citizen Four, Transformers, Age of Extinction, try and pick that one out of the others, Calvary, Robocops Remake, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, um, The One I Love, Goodnight Mommy, The Equalizer, The Drop, those are, a, I don't know, a good 70-80% of the films that are on the first full page of most popular films released in 2014. So that kind of helps us set the stage a little bit here. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this is a pretty good year. Uh, I can go into some of the stats for this year. Uh, I've seen 339 films released in 2014. Um, in the, during the course of the year, I of the calendar year of 2014, I saw 892 films, uh, roughly. The average film rating for films released in 2014 is 51.96, which is a little bit down from 2013. 
The average tomato meter is 63.53. I have seen every single film that has that won or was nominated for an Oscar in 2014. There are 10 films from the year that make my top 300. And the most prevalent genre, as it generally will be, is drama. 171 dramas this year. Uh, two genres uh, for 2014, where that is the most films in that genre I've seen of any year. So uh, 2014 leads the way in mysteries, with 56 mysteries, better than any other year, and ties with for westerns. Uh, so 2014, I saw six, I've seen six westerns. I also saw six westerns from 2015. So, um, yeah, I got some catching up to do on westerns. Uh, my good to bad ratio for 2014, 148 to 139. So just a little over one, uh, which is a pretty decent ratio. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. So let us um, take a look at some of these films here. And uh, we'll... We'll transition into them with a compilation of this year's Best Original Song nominees. They strung up a man They say who murdered three Strange things that happen here No stranger would you cry if I died Would you remember my face? Those are the five nominees for Best Original Song. We will get to that category at a later point. But first, we got to do this. Uh, I already I have an order. Um, it's not as as flimsy as it as it will be or has been, maybe. Uh, and uh, let's just uh, figure it out. So, like uh, my plan is to go through each category, listing down the names of the person or film that the award is being attributed to by alphabetically and then i will talk about them in reverse order so i will talk about them in order 10 through 1 in the case of performances or 5 through 1 in the case of all the of the other eight categories um, to start the night out we are going to go into the best supporting performance and the nominees are 
Patricia Arquette, Boyhood. Emily Blunt, Edge of Tomorrow. Carrie Coon, Gone Girl. Michael Fassbender, Frank. Donald Gleason, Ex Machina. Ethan Hawke, Boyhood. Edward Norton, Birdman. J.K. Simmons, Whiplash. Kristen Stewart, Clouds of Sils Maria. And Emma Stone for Birdman. So, out the gate, two nominations for Birdman, two nominations for Boyhood. Let us start at the bottom and work our way up. So, uh, for me, the number 10 supporting act uh, performance this year is from Boyhood, and that is Patricia Arquette. Uh, I think she's great in this movie. It's it's a... This is... Boyhood is such a such a anomaly. You know, you don't get that sort of a film ever, really. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. I, I think it's a fantastic film. And Patricia Arquette is great in it. Um, she she's as one of the two like actual actors that worked through the whole film alongside Ethan Hawke. Uh, it, it's I, I I really enjoy the showcase of seeing her own acting abilities develop and fluctuate through time. You know, it's far far different from someone who's kind of more of an unknown who maybe doesn't even know acting techniques and acting abilities early on. Whereas for Arquette, uh, she she certainly, you know, was a, and is a, a, a significant and, and skilled actor uh, from, from before Boyhood began filming uh, up until now. And her performance is, she gets, uh, I think, one, maybe two big moments in the film and that's great, but I think a lot of the moments outside of those are, are less exciting, less um, less impressive than than the bigger moments, which is why she's a little further down the list. And I think a lot of people generally ranked her this year, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I really like her 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 performance. I like the film a lot, and uh, I I knew she had to be on the list. Um, unfortunately, she uh, ended up at the bottom of it. But I love Patricia Arquette, Boyhood, she's number 10. Number 9, Best Supporting Performance of the Year, goes to Carrie Coon in Gone Girl. And this is kind of a case where the lead performance in in Gone Girl is just kind of so overwhelming that you don't really get enough um, enough from the supporting players. And... I would say the same as you could say the same thing for um, uh, Ben Ben Affleck, who is good in the movie, but is you know when you look at him as compared to uh, Rosamund Pike, it's it's pretty underwhelming. And I think while Carrie Coon's performance in this is not as good as Rosamund Pike's, it is far less of a, there's far less of a divide between the two of them uh, than there is between Pike and Affleck. And Kuhn doesn't have as much screen time, um, which I think helps because when she is on the screen, she's able to really uh, embellish and and um, sort of generate that, that evocative performance that she needs to, you know. She is playing a fairly complicated role 
in the film she has to sort of tie together all these different emotions and uh, make sure that you, the viewer, aren't, I don't know, she kind of grounds you as opposed to, you know, when we're not, when we're, when we're with Rosamund Pike's character, you know, things are a lot very heightened, um, everything is kind of blasting you at, at a 10, whereas when we're with Carrie Coon, things are much more subdued, much more settled down, we're back in reality, you know, we're dealing with the fallout of the events that took place in the film, and she, she makes that transition so much easier than it probably could have been otherwise. Uh, so, a big fan of Carrie Coon. Uh, it's a shame she didn't hasn't. I, I wish she she could really break out from this role, and uh, you know she she can definitely carry a film on her own. I think, but uh, it remains to be seen if that that opportunity will ever come. So, number nine for me, best supporting performance is Carrie Coon from Gone Girl. Number eight uh, is from Birdman. And that is Emma Stone. Uh, Emma Stone comes in here at number eight. And her performance is... She she has a fantastic scene, uh, I think, with, um, with Michael Keaton midway through the film that really highlights the best of Emma Stone. And I think the problem therein is that it's really the only scene that I think showcases uh, how, how good of an actor she really is. The moments she shares with, um, with Edward Norton on the rooftop is fine, I think. I think that scene... Sh- uh, you get more from Norton in that scene, in my opinion. And Norton just has a much bigger breadth over the film as a whole uh, to kind of just impacted and he 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 kind of gets a lot more moments where he can play off a variety of different characters where for Emma Stone it's basically just Edward Norton and Michael Keaton which are obviously fantastic partners to act with but um, it does kind of limit her range a bit more in that sense uh, so that performance though that that one scene she shares with Keaton where she basically just goes off on him and uh, just kind of really digs into him and and cuts into him with her words is is really something else it's very strong probably my favorite moment and scene that she's ever acted in her career up until this point uh and and maybe even beyond i i think that's going to be something that scene itself is going to be hard for her to top but i do think as a whole she will have better performances going forward uh and so here she is only number eight uh, in the best supporting performance category, but um, I do subscribe to the opinion that it is an honor just to be nominated. So number eight is Emma Stone from Birdman. Number seven, rounding out the coupling in Boyhood, is Ethan Hawke. Uh, Ethan Hawke has had incredible success teaming up with Richard Linklater, while Boyhood I don't think is their best collaboration it is certainly a fantastic one even hawk gives us a, a phenomenal performance uh th- through like 13 years of his life and then some uh, and it's it's really impressive what he's able to do with this character he is far less of a stable figure uh in in the boy's life in the movie than arquette's character is you know 
she's the mom, she raises him, she lives with him, whereas Ethan Hawke just kind of floats in and out of his life. And it's so fascinating to watch as he um, he, he kind of ch- changes far more because we, we, we don't see him for long extended periods of time. And he has to come in, quickly establish the changes that have changed for him, and then also quickly establish how those changes that he's undergone are now going to affect... Uh, I can't think of his name. What is his name? the kid in boyhood uh Coty Ely I can like feel letters Eller Coltrane Colt okay Eller Coltrane I had the right sounds but not the right words uh yeah so Eller Coltrane uh I think Eller Coltrane I think is at his best when he's acting with Ethan Hawke as opposed to Arquette uh but his performance in and of itself is is not on their level and I think Ethan Hawke is able to just enter the scene, command its attention without any build-up whatsoever. He didn't, you know, his his character doesn't grow on in front of us, but grows behind the scenes. And I think that's so much more difficult to portray, and I think Ethan Hawke is very, very successful in pulling that off. So, number seven for me, from Boyhood, best supporting performance is Ethan Hawke. Number six, uh, wearing a giant paper mache head for the majority of his film is Michael Fassbender in Frank. Uh, yeah, so he does not get much to do with his face because it is hidden most of the film. And so for a lot of the film, we have to sort of play off what he's saying, the way he's uh, talking and, and, and sort of the inflections in his voice. And it isn't until the very end of the film, when the mask comes off, that we really that we get to see Fassbender's face and really see the emotions uh, appear on it. And that is a moment in the film that has to play perfectly, because this is a character who we've never really seen for ninety percent of the movie. And if it doesn't, if the removal of the headgear doesn't match up with this character that we only know through his voice really and and you know if the face doesn't match up and sync up with like what we've sort of built up in our heads it doesn't quite work and now so at least Michael Fassbender you know obviously hearing his voice knowing he's in the movie understanding that the character of Frank is played by him we know what he looks like before the mask comes off we've seen him in other movies that's not an issue but it's it's you know there's so many different directions you can take the character of Frank in terms of physical approach, you know, he can be, he could have been crazier than he actually is, he could have been more depressed, he could have been more silly, he could, you know, they could have gone in a lot of different directions, and Fassbender hits, hits that note perfectly, uh, I think, you, you take the mask off, he continues to talk w- without it on, and you don't feel any dissociation between the character you've grown through this movie with and the character you're seeing in front of you without the mask. And I think that's a lot more difficult than people might give him credit for. Uh, I think that the the fact that he does have to act with the mask on so so much of the film does hamper his his uh, placement here. That's why he's only ranked 6th and doesn't even does not break the top 5, but 
I still think it is an, a fantastic performance and one that should be noticed and um, respected. So number six, Michael Fassbender, Frank. Number five is uh, actually Michael Fassbender's co-star in Frank, but not in Frank, and that's Donald Gleason from Ex Machina. Uh, this is uh, his first nomination in the in any category here, and he, you know, it, it's tough. It, it's it's tough to distinguish between lead and supporting for for Donald Gleason. He's certainly the print the protagonist of the film but i think that because the film really does split its time quite well between him and alicia vikander and uh um 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 oscar isaac you know it's tough to distinguish who's the lead and who's the supporting and so in making that distinction and making that decision for me uh, i have put donald gleason as a supporting performance i think his role is maybe maybe his I think his role probably does have the most screen time of those trio of actors but I do think that his character is secondary to um, Alicia Vikander's who I would consider a lead in that film myself personally so for me uh, it's Donald Gleason an ex machina he is tasked with acting opposite of a human uh, that he has to believe is artificial intelligence, but is also attempting to determine whether or not he can determine whether she is artificial. It's very interesting and a very layered and, and multifaceted performance that he has to give to portray exactly what is happening. And, and that's there's a lot of dissociation, dissoci dissociation that he has to have between... Uh, what's really what he was really seeing on the set? What we have to see when we see the film, and and you know all the different machinations and 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 gears that have to constantly be turning in his head to try to get him into the mindset of this is Alicia Vikander, but I have to know in my head that she's not a human being, but I'm also trying to determine if she is passable as a human being. And so it's tough to like work that out, and and like even just like saying it is slightly confusing. And I think Donald Gleason has shown uh, in some of his previous films that he really is capable of giving these layered performances, and uh, he he follows in Brendan Gleason's footsteps quite well. So I cannot wait to see him in future films, and I think this is one of his better one of his best performances, and I I can't wait to see him top it. So, Donald Gleason, number five, for Ex Machina. In number four, we have Emily Blunt for Edge of Tomorrow, uh, the Tom Cruise sci-fi action movie. Uh, Emily Blunt is uh, his partner, um, depending on the timeline, sidekick, love interest, confidant, uh, captain, trainer, coach, whatever, I don't know, she, she's a lot of different relationships to Tom Cruise's character in the film, and what's interesting about this performance and this movie is, you know, it plays with that Groundhog Day trope of, you know, repeating the same things over and over and over again, 
and you have to, you know, there's this sense that so many of these scenes that play out again and again and again, Emily Blunt has to approach the exact same way. And I think that the general process of acting helps out in this regard because oftentimes, and you know, you don't really know this unless you're like looking into the production of the film, you know, they generally shoot things out of sequence. So while we're watching the movie, you know, it might say, oh, well, she's it, you know, two thirds through the movie, she's had all this other stuff happen to her, you know, we have to see that, that those events have that have transpired on the character's face. And yet when they're acting and when they're filming the movie, that could be the first scene they shoot. And that's really tough. You know, you have to go into, say, like one of the last scenes in the movie as if you've been through everything else except you haven't yet. And then you have to go back to the beginning of the movie and you're filming those scenes and then you have to act like none of the other stuff has happened yet, but it already has. And and that's tough to, to work around and tough in my, to me at least, it feels very difficult to pull that off, and I think shooting in sequence is a real benefit to a lot of actors, but when the movie itself is resetting almost every five minutes, then it kind of takes some of that pressure off, because it's easy to go in, for some in some sense, some cases, uh, it's easy to go into a scene later in the movie when the time has been reset, and say, oh, well, nothing's happened yet, and I have to act like nothing's happened yet, so perfect, (laughs) you know, like, it's very easy to do that, Uh, so, but, like, then everything kind of gets twisted around, and so now when you're, so, but for, so for this movie, you know, every single new iteration of time, Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise and the entire cast have to approach it as if, like, okay, we haven't shot anything else, nothing else has ever happened, this is the first time you're meeting this character, go, and you just kind of have to put yourself back at one to move forward again. And then you have to rewind and move forward again. And you have to rewind and move forward again. And that's got to take a lot of take a lot out of you. And I think that's, that's very difficult. And I think Emily Blunt gives a pretty... Uh, for, for the film that she's in and for the film that Edge of Tomorrow is, I think her performance is a very layered one. Uh, it's a very nuanced one Um, a lot of the personal moments that we get between her and tom cruise uh could come off a bit more uh uh, sort of cheesy and and uh, melodramatic than they actually do and and that's a testament to both her and and cruise but i think uh, because most of those personal moments come from emily blunt's character uh, i think that she she embodies that role incredibly well and uh i was very impressed And so for number four for me, that's Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow. Nomination, or or best supporting performance number three this year. The third best supporting performance, in my opinion, overall is also from Birdman, and that is Edward Norton. So mentioned him a little bit when we were talking about Emma Stone. Uh, Edward Norton, you get to see him act within his acting at times, which I love. I love seeing that stuff. I think that's so fascinating to watch. You get to see this great sort of rivalry and uh, sort of um, pissing contest between 
Norton and Keaton throughout the film. You get to see Norton interacting with a lot of different people that aren't, you know, in a a much wider range. And I think that lends itself really well to helping him sort of add different sides to his character and make him feel more three-dimensional. And just, just the scenes where, like, he's actually acting inside the film you know those are some of my favorite moments in Birdman I think they are it's very tough you know it's it's you gotta any any movie that has these moments in it you have to pretend like there's 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 a veneer a thin veneer you have to mask yourself in when you're doing a performance like this where you have to convince the audience that the person acting in in the character you're playing who is acting in something else that there's some distinction between the actual character and the performance that that character is giving and that's a very tough line to walk and uh, edward norton is a fantastic actor he's been around for so long he has done so many great movies and this feel this movie and this performance feel like sort of a culmination of sort of everything he's ever learned and uh, he pulls it off flawlessly. Uh, you know, he is incredible in this movie, and I am incredibly Im- impressed by his performance. I think he is, in my in my opinion, he is uh, best in show in this movie. Better than Keaton, better than Stone. Uh, num- best performance in, in the movie goes to Edward Norton. And I thought he was great. Uh, he's my number three this year. Number three. Number two, this year's runner-up for Best Supporting Performance uh, goes to the former star of the Twilight series who everyone, most everyone, I think, used to hate. And uh, that's quite a shame because she is actually an incredibly talented actor and that's from Clouds of Hills Maria, Kristen Stewart. Uh, she plays opposite Juliette Binoche in the film, as well as, um, oh, it's a uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. And Kristen Stewart has really shown outside of the Twilight movies, in my opinion, that she is capable of doing bigger and better things. I love her performance in Adventureland. Uh, that was kind of the first place I saw her that wasn't a kids movie or wasn't like a YA vampire movie and it was I was I was impressed I I really thought she had some skills there and then Clouds of Sils Maria comes out um from Olivier Assayas he this is fantastic movie first and foremost and Stewart's performance in my opinion anchors the film I think she plays so beautifully off of Juliette Binoche the two have brilliantly wonderful chemistry and it's Stuart who really gives the film added dimensions and uh, you know the way that she coaxes Binoche's character into different scenarios and into different conversations I think is I don't know it just it just felt like the 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 writing team and Stewart's character were just on on the exact same page. They worked so well together, and she delivers the lines. She's not 
stone-faced she's not blank she's not emotionless she you know she's acting she is she is so much better than so many people give her credit for and this performance is hopefully just the start of of bigger and better things to come i'm a big fan of kristen stewart i can't wait to see more films from her and uh so for me she is my number two best supporting performance of the year and that leaves our number one this year's best supporting performance winner is jk simmons from whiplash i think that's kind of expected i think a lot of people have picked this as their number one uh performance not even just supporting but overall performance and it is a tour de force you the any critiques you might have against this performance uh you know and there are some i think at times you can even call uh jk simmons character like not very three-dimensional he's very two-dimensional at times and and that's true but the performance itself is 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 unbelievable he completely reinvents the the idea of who we think jk simmons is he is so much more than you know j jonah jameson in uh, from spider-man who was also a fantastic performance from jk simmons you know he he embodies this guy this this music teacher who is uh, uh, you know, hard as a rock, and and just will not bend. Is completely unyielding. It's his way or the highway, and you can see the the absolute respect he has for Miles Teller, but also the the drive that he has to force not just Miles Teller but everyone that he's working with to be absolutely perfect in every single thing that they do and and he will not take anything less than that and in my opinion his performance is not is nothing less than perfect uh his his just oh man it's it's truly remarkable and you know i would watch you know i watch whiplash over again just for that performance and i think he is more than worth the price of admission my favorite supporting performance of the year, J.K. Simmons, Whiplash. Loved it. So good. So good. All right, moving on to our next category. We have tactile effects. Best tactile effects. Quick refresher. This loosely translates to costume design, makeup and hairstyling, production design, and sound. And the nominees are Boyhood, Get On Up, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Into the Woods. Couple new fra- uh, a couple new faces in this category, uh, and we will start with number five, and that is Get On Up. Get On Up is a James Brown biopic, and the the biggest reason get on up makes it into this category is the makeup and uh hairstyling section of the category and if you haven't seen the film it's pretty amazing it stars chadwick boseman who gives an incredibly electric performance as james brown but in doing so they have to age him at various points throughout the movie 
and I think they do an incredible job. I think the costuming department does a fantastic job making Chadwick Boseman not only look like James Brown, but look like an aged or young James Brown, as uh, this as the film calls for it. The costume design. This is a period piece uh, at points, and and you know the costumes are definitely representative of that. Uh, the production design is is fine. It's not the most uh, ambitious or the most impressive film as far as production design goes, but it is more than sufficient. And the sound, you know, like there's music, there's singing in this movie. There's a lot of sort of Bozeman having to adjust his voice, and you end up with a lot of just periphery, peripheral sounds happening. Uh, you know, when you have these scenes that take place at concerts and, and in big venues, and there's a lot of people in the scenes, and the, the sound team did a great job mix, um, editing those, those scenes and editing those rooms to sound authentic and real and, and make sense and, and distinguish each sound from each other sound. And I think, as a whole, just the, the tactile aspects of this film are very, very high, high in quality, and... Um, they're they're good. It's a good movie. You should check it out. It's it's a very very good movie. My number four tactile effects is Boyhood. Uh, Boyhood, sort of a period piece. Uh, you know, <laughs> at times it like goes back to the '90s and the early 2000s, and so you know the, the costumes and and sort of the production design with that. You know, I remember like just watching the movie and pointing out all these different things that I had seen in the backgrounds of scenes or off to the sides, like, oh my gosh, I remember that when I was five, ten. I know, you know, I know I had this thing, I had that thing. Like, where did they find these stu- this stuff? You know, how did they come across these things? They're like 20 years old. Nobody has them anymore. And that's really exciting. That was really fascinating and fun to see in the film. Um, and, and even beyond that, you know, you look at the way that... Um, just the way that the characters are presented, you know, you have to do when when Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke are, you know, in their 30s as opposed to their 40s. You have different makeup, you have different hair that you have to give each of these characters as they progress through life because it doesn't really make sense that they have the same haircut for 30 years. Like, generally, people don't, and so it takes, you know, you have to not only style things differently, but you have to have to gauge where thing where these characters would have gone with with their look and with their presentation depending on the sequencing of the movie um and then the sound i mean the sound is fine like this is the weakest of the th- of the four se- segments of tactile effects for boyhood in my opinion it's good sound effects or, or sound editing but it's not sound mixing but it's it's not anything exceptional there's no really standout moments, for me at least, in the film um, in that category. Number four, Boyhood. Number three, uh, best tactile effects, is Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, I mentioned it before, this is the most popular film of 2014, according to Letterboxd. It takes place entirely in space, in a galaxy far from ours, perhaps maybe uh and so for that you know you got lasers you got talking raccoons talking trees you got 
green people and blue people and robotic people and makeup this here and there and a lot of, a lot of stuff going on and the makeup is very very good in Guardians of the Galaxy the costumes are fantastic uh, the production design and the sound all top notch I think they're all great um, you know I think they do a fantastic job of of creating this world it never feels fake uh, it never feels artificial and that's a, a big testament to just just the team on this on this movie uh, I will say that the only the biggest reason that Guardians comes in at three and not any higher is the visual effects and now visual effects aren't part of tactile effects but uh, there is an L you know the the amount of this film that is visual effects you know isn't tactile so um, when the costumes or the makeup or the production or the sound is part of the CGI uh, that does not count towards their tactile effects positioning so that is generally the only only hitch you know if it was entirely practical uh, I could definitely see a, a, a world where Guardians wins this whole category but as it stands it is a three for me um, the third best tactile effects of the year Guardians of the Galaxy number two best tactile effects uh, is Into the Woods Into the Woods uh, and this is production design all the way like best production design well, second, second best production design of the year uh, the sound is fantastic you have to mix all these or not mix but edit all these songs into those landscapes and the worlds a lot of these songs are like people overlaid on top of each other um, particularly the song Your Fault where you have like five or six different characters all singing over top of each other and you have to make sure that those are sound crisp and clear and, and can be distinguished from each other uh, you have a lot of big sounds you know you've got um, giants in this world it is a fantasy world there's a lot of different noises and you know there's a song that takes place by a creek and the creek's got a sound and, and you know, waterfall and all that stuff a lot of stuff the costumes and makeup and hairstyling are also Im incredible. You know, you have all of these fairy tale creatures in this fairy tale world, and they have to look the part. They have to feel the part. They have to present themselves as the part. They have to seem like they existed, and and they're all from different fairy tale worlds, but they have to be contained in this one. And so you have to make them look different enough from each other so you can distinguish. You know the you know the baker and and his wife from from the cinderella from the rapunzel from all these different characters and and that's tricky that's not easy to do and i think the team working on into the woods did an incredible job i was so impressed um i wasn't super super impressed by the film i, I think the film is good not great but i think that the tactile effects in the film are quite quite outstanding so for me, number two is Into the Woods, Best Tactile Effects. And that leaves our winner for the Best Tactile Effects category as the Grand Budapest Hotel and uh, production design. I, I could almost leave it at that. It has incredible production design, as so many Wes Anderson movies do. Um, but if, you, if I have to move past that, 
Um, the hairstyling and makeup and costume design, it is another, it is a period piece, and those do quite well in that department. And Grand Budapest Hotel is no different. It completely excels in in that in that arena, and it's it's fan, it's it's just fantastic. It's it's incredibly well made. It's it looks great. It, it feels great. It, it sounds great. The sound like there are a lot of sound effects in this movie that you know the the whole prison escape and the motorcycle and and the cliff and everything happening within the hotel it's such a big hotel the the colors and the, the the scheme oh my gosh it just all looks so fantastic and sounds great and for me it's grand budapest hotel with the best tactile effects of the year on the back of its outstanding production design uh, i i absolutely adored it i loved it so much so for me winner best tactile effects the Grand Budapest Hotel. And now we will move into best special effects, as as we should. Uh, these two categories, always inseparable, but always distinguishable. And the nominees for best special effects are Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Ex Machina, The Grand Budapest Hotel, How to Train Your Dragon 2, Interstellar. So, quick refresher for what best special effects really is. It translates to visual effects, as you would see in uh, in Interstellar, Ex Machina, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It translates to animation, film editing, and cinematography. So, uh, pretty wide array of films here. And we will start with our number five, and that is our winner from the last category, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, just like... Um, like with every Wes Anderson film, the cinematography is exceptional. Uh, the sort of the 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 um, what am I? What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, the symmetry. The symmetry in all of his shots are is is is, is so impressive, and it, it it feels weird. You know, it doesn't feel normal, feel natural, but it looks exceptional and and it makes it adds to this quirkiness of this world that we in, that he inhabits and that his films inhabit and i think it only serves to uh improve improve and impress upon you the viewer that uh the film is is real and it takes place in this sort of strange world because it looks strange and the characters are strange and they all kind of work in great cohesion uh, really no animation in Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, but the film editing is, is quite quite exceptional as well. The film editing, uh, you know, you, it's a flashback within a flashback. You've got all these different uh, uh, time threads of time working at, at odds with each other, and it all comes together in a very cohesive and cogent and, and understandable way. Um, and what little visual effects there are, uh, as far as I was concerned, seamless. They were they were good. Um, there wasn't anything super exceptional, but they were good, and and you never they never took me out of the movie. So, number five, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Number four, best special effects uh, is How to Train Your Dragon Two, uh, the sequel to the heralded first How to Train Your Dragon. Is 
uh, very much animated. Uh, easily the best animated film uh, on this list. Um, or not not best animated, but has the best animation of other films on the list because most of the others, with the exception of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, don't really have animation at all. Uh, the visual effects are quite good. Um, just like the way that they incorporate and, and can combine the different um, planes of existence and the foreground and background of the, of the film. You know, you have all these dragons, all these characters, all these landscapes that have to look perfect and real. And uh, they do. They, they really do. You know, these, these, the How to Train Your Dragon movies just look incredible to me. The film editing is good. And the cinematography is good. Neither of them are the best. Uh, Neither of them are breaking the bank. Neither of them are uh, super outstanding. But they are very, very good. uh, And, and, you know, it just makes this film look very lush, very real, very not animated, actually. You know, like it looks far more real than so many other animated films do. And that is impressive. That is... an an impressive thing so that's number four how to train your dragon two number three is ex machina uh has incredible visual effects you know alicia vikander has to look and feel and present herself as not human uh outside of her face and as far as i was concerned she did i never felt like there was a seam a flaw in in the in the effects in that film and it's a testament to to the team that worked on the visual effects that that's the case uh you know and outside of that uh the cinematography is uh, it's really good it's really good the cinematography film editing of this film really good it it presents this this it lays out this test uh to determine whether or not uh Vikander's character is human or not and we go through it and everything is kind of cut and paced very well you know for a film which has a lot of talking uh it doesn't feel slow it's not bogging you down with exposition and and dialogue that isn't exciting or thrilling we end up with a lot of choppy moments that kind of culminate in this sort of bombastic finale and the editing team did a great job of of building that up and and making this film seem just pacing it very very well very very well so for me number three ex machina uh and so number two our runner-up for best special effects is dawn of the planet of the apes it's Weta's, uh, you know, Weta is an incredible visual effects studio, and every ape in this movie is so brilliantly realized. Uh, the 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 assault scene towards the end of the film, uh, the apes on the the human compound is in, in, incredible. It's exceptional. It's a brilliant scene, and it looks so real. Like, just I can't even imagine you know, someone from 50 years ago watching one of these newer Planet of the Apes movies and and just having no clue how they got monkeys to do that, right? Like, you look at it like, how did you get an ape to do that? And it's like, oh no, those are humans that 
we made look like apes. Like that's, you know, it's not a costume. It's it's the special effects are are second to none, in my opinion. And as far as visual effects this year goes, just that category, it belongs to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. But when you add in animation and film editing and cinematography, uh, it does drag drag Dawn of the Planet of the Apes down just a tiny bit. You know, the film editing is good. The cinematography is very good. Both of them are very good. But neither of them is 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 great. They're not they're not you know breaking new ground. You know the film looks good, but it's not shot any better than you know um, most other films. It's it's you know there's some some great moments you know where the camera follows the turret on the tank. Like I love that moment. That's a fantastic moment. Uh, but a lot of the film is far more pedestrian than that, and. Uh, for me, that's that's where things and land land. So uh, for me, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, number two, so close, but number two, special effects, which means our winner, best special effects from 2014, is Interstellar. Uh, Interstellar has the second best special effects of the year or visual effects of the year, but uh, Christopher Nolan knows how to edit a film no you know the cinematography in in interstellar is beautiful it's lush you know everything is a landscape everything can be a background of your desktop computer or your phone uh probably not your phone because the screen's too small but definitely a computer it, it looks amazing you know we go to all these white planets uh and you know those all have to be realized beautifully and on top of that, he's able to shoot the films so fantastically, so amazingly. I, I don't know. I, it's just, it, it just looks great. And I think whatever you think of the film and its ending and, and how, it, how it ultimately plays out and the story of it all, you cannot deny how beautiful it is to look at. Uh, I really do think it's, it's something else. It really is. And yeah. For me, it's Interstellar, best special effects of the year from 2014, Interstellar. I love it. So, moving on, we're going to jump out of the technical effect, technical awards and into best screenplay. Very hotly contested category this year. And the nominees are Alejandro Inaritu. Nicholas Jacobon, Alexander de Nolares, and Armando Bow for Birdman. Wes Anderson for the Grand Budapest Hotel, Alex Garland for Ex Machina, Dan Gilroy for Nightcrawler, and Damien Zifron for Wild Tales. Uh, we see our first uh, foreign language film pop up in this category in Wild Tales. And uh, we can talk about it first because it is my number five of the year best screenplay. And Wild Tales, if you haven't seen it, the general idea is that you have this like half a dozen, eight or, or t six to eight different segments of a story. They are self-contained little little vignettes that all culminate in this overarching uh, narrative and this overarching theme and this overarching message and to write that uh you know when you you know when you watch a short film 
uh, something five to ten minutes long, it's very difficult for that film to present something, resolve, uh, expand upon it, and resolve a thing uh, without it sometimes feeling rushed, without it feeling sort of neat, too neat and tidy a lot of the times. And when your fi- when your feature length film is a ton of well, like a bunch of vignettes, you know, you have the same sort of issue. You have to make sure that something doesn't that the film doesn't feel you know contrived and uh, as if you know too too simple too easy too too uh, too obvious and I think Wild Tales really strikes that balance and walks that line brilliantly it's it's separated into uh, some pretty imp- incredible stories and by having so many different stories that you end up with so many different characters and that mean that just adds on to the complexity and difficulty of okay now i have to write i can't just write 12 characters for a feature length film i have to write 12 characters for this vignette and 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 i have a fraction of the time to develop them and get our, our viewers to understand them and i don't think it's always perfectly successful i think the just the simple nature of the film having uh, having giving us less time with every single character makes it more difficult, and I don't think it always succeeds. But I think it, it is a incredibly well written screenplay, and I think it's the principal reason why the film is as great and as incredible as it is. So for me, number five is I think I'm saying this right: Damien Sifron's Wild Tales. Number four is Alex Garland's Ex Machina, the third nomination tonight for Ex Machina. And uh, so far, no wins yet. Uh, But Ex Machina, as I mentioned before, there is a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of talk. There's, uh, you know, this the screenplay kind of goes hand in hand with the editing and that you have to... It's written in a way where... You have these extended scenes where it's just Donald Gleason talking to Oscar Isaac, or it's just Donald Gleason talking to Alicia Vikander, or it's just Alicia Vikander talking to Oscar Isaac. You know, all these just these characters talking to each other, and uh, it's tough for films that have mostly just dialogue to to have the energy and the momentum and the excitement and uh, you know the the appeal of you know films that have some action, films that have you know some some. Some fisticuffs, some some guns, some some uh, you know, talking apes and things like that. And while Ex Machina ultimately does get bombastic toward the end, it is very much um, hinges on the strength of the writing in you know the first two thirds, three quarters, four fifths of the film uh, to keep you entertained and to hold your attention. And it's Garland's writing that uh, successfully pulls that off. I think he does a fantastic job, and I'm, I was very impressed. Uh, you know, I love the writing, and he, he really does make it very easy on the actors to come across as the exact roles they are supposed to be, as these, these brilliant minds, these intelligent people, and not that they aren't necessarily intelligent outside of these characters, but just, just to make it easier on them for to to really feel like they're scientists to feel like this is an artificial intelligence like it's it's very impressive number three is dan gilroy's nightcrawler 
uh, the first appearance for Nightcrawler in this year's uh, awards. And Dan Gilroy, kind of, you know, first movie, I think. If not first, then like... Um, I'm going to double check that, actually. I don't think... He's, ri- he's written a bunch of films, but as a director... As a, his first film as a director, but he has been he has written before, and uh, Nightcrawler. I think he he finally was able to turn his his screenplay into the vision he had for it, uh, with the help of from some pretty fantastic performances from from Jake Gyllenhaal uh, and and Rene Russo and Riz Ahmed. He's able to really make this film. Um, so so much more exciting and and dark and depressing and invigorating than maybe it, it could have been or should have been because I think on paper the premise is sort of thin but in practice and on the screen it it's so real it is so um, so brilliant and it's his screenplay the screenplay you know far more than the direction is is a huge component of that you know all this dialogue you know the the snappy witty way that Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo bounce back and forth at each other the um the the connections between Riz Ahmed and and Gyllenhaal's characters and how they're just constantly on the lookout and you have to give these give this direct the directions to these scenes where Gyllenhaal and or Riz Ahmed are are stalking you know the cops or stalking these criminals and and make it feel so real and so visceral and uh, the screenplay does that it really does it it does make you feel like it's it's all there it's it's all on it's all in front of you and uh, I was really impressed I was really impressed so that's Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler number three number two best screenplay of the year and this year's runner-up is the Grand Budapest Hotel Uh, this is the um, third nomination for the Grand Budapest Hotel and it is you know it's maybe the second best aspect of the film Mm, I guess third I guess if 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 uh, production design uh, is probably my favorite aspect of Grand Budapest Hotel. We haven't gotten to my second favorite, but my third favorite aspect is the screenplay. I think it, it's just so well written. Wes Anderson has such a command over uh, the way he constructs his scenes, and he gets these moments, and you know he has to write the film um, in a way that he can actually shoot it, to be as symmetrical as it is, and that he can make it so quirky, and and he, all these things have to be working in such conjunction with themselves, uh, especially on Wes Anderson films, and you know, no one, I think, no one is better than than him at making every single element of his films uh, work toward the exact same goal. You know, when you look at every Wes Anderson film that's been made. Uh, they you can def- they stand out like a sore thumb amidst the rest of the variety of films out there, but what beyond that you you even have uh, just this this sensibility and this 
notion that you know without that that it, it's almost like the the different facets of the film couldn't avoid being the way that they are uh you know you couldn't possibly make grand budapest hotel if it wasn't as symmetrical if it wasn't as quirky if it didn't look pink and and sort of pastel and the writing is kind of the first step you know the writing is what spawns all these other things and ties them all together so well and i think wes anderson is a fantastic screenwriter (coughs) excuse me and grand budapest hotel is i think in my opinion his second best written film and uh He's he's in, exceptional, and Grand Budapest Hotel is an incredible movie, and I think deserving of number two best screenplay of the year, which leaves the best screenplay of the year to Birdman, uh, shared between Alejandro Inarritu, Nicholas Giacobon, Alexandra Dinolaris, and Armando Bo, who I'm whose whose names I may have pronounced incorrectly. Um, Birdman, uh, and. Uh, much more, while 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 definitely the Grand Budapest Hotel's screenplay is tasked with combining all these different elements and making them all cohesive, Birdman's screenplay has a more difficult task. It, you know, I think much more so than the other films that have been mentioned in any capacity on in this episode. Uh, Birdman's characters have to be. But do most of their uh, have almost all of their identities explained through dialogue, uh, and and all the relationships and all their development and all of their dimensions are dialogue based, and that is, um, I mean that's fine if your dialogue is is written really well, and in this case it really is. Uh, you, all these these four writers collaborating together really achieved something special. And not only that, but the writing has to also lend itself. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, where a lot, where in the process, uh, you know, you two made the decision to film the Birdman as if it were all in one take. But uh, you know, that's the, the film. The writing has to give itself that possibility and. It must have because it, it looks so perfect, right? It, it, for me, at least, it, it seems like it was so perfectly made and written and presented to end up as a film that doesn't have cuts or or does, but they're seamless, or or does, but they're hidden or you know trickery, and you have to the the writing of the film is such that. It really does have to. It can't have any mistakes. There can't be any hiccups. There can't be any problems. You know, you have all these big scenes like um, between Keaton and Emma Stone, between Emma Stone and 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 Edward Norton, between Norton and Keaton, between Keaton and Galifianakis, and you know all these different characters. This wide array of of names and and faces that have to uh, have. Yeah, the dialogue has to be written so it's so natural and it comes across so easily that when you know you can't risk or you can but you really don't want to have to risk you know your actors messing up or mistaking you know saying something out of turn saying something out of out of phrase and 
to me, like that indicates that the writing has to be so on point. It has to come across so effortlessly and naturally that there could be no other line of dialogue that the actor might ever uh, even even think to to replace what was actually written. Uh, and I think that that really feels. I, I really feel that when I watch Birdman, I think it, it does come across that well and that brilliantly and that beautifully. And I think that's that's the strength of a, of a best screenplay. So for me, best screenplay of the year goes to Birdman. Uh, that's its first win on three nominations so far in today's episode. And now... With screenplay out of the way, we will move on to Best Original Score. Best Original Score, everybody. And the nominees are... Alexander Desplat, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Justin Hurwitz, Whiplash. Jason Moran, Selma. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, Gone Girl. Hans Zimmer, Interstellar. Uh, a pretty pretty big na- list of names here for best original score. A lot of a lot of very recognizable names here. And uh, starting out that list, we're going to start with number five, and that is Jason Moran for Selma. Selma's score is is a strong one, is a good one, and uh, one that I have definitely um, you know I. I, I find myself revisiting occasionally it, it's a it's a movie that just sounds good it's it's sort of an upwelling of emotions at times uh for the better and uh credit that to jason moran for for making this film sound and feel through his score like it really is transcending um this this moment at selma you know it's about so much more than this one event you know it really is taking on every civil rights movement, every civil rights issue in and of itself. And I don't, that's a tall order to, to ask of a score. And, and I'm, I'm going to say that Jason Moran's score is not quite up to task, but is, is very nearly there, very nearly there. Uh, and I think that's the biggest discrepancy between where, you know, between why it is ranked fifth this year and not any higher. But that being said, you know, it, it's some, there's something to just being able to be in that conversation because I think most uh, composers couldn't, wouldn't even be able to, to get close to where Moran's score is in Selma. Uh, it sounds great, and it, it really does inspire uh, when you watch the movie. It, it, it fills you and, and hurts when it's supposed to hurt and, and, and surges your your emotions when they're supposed to surge so for me number five is jason moran in selma or jason moran composing selma number four uh is trent reznor and atticus ross for gone girl uh so fincher's gone girl is uh pretty evocative uh in my opinion and the the score uh, has to match that. So, like I mentioned when I was talking about Carrie Coon, 
the film sort of transitions back and forth between uh, Rosamund Pike and this heightened state of of awareness that she is in and her heightened reality and uh, the the sort of Ben Affleck, Carrie Coon home drama that's going on. And Reznor and Ross are able to balance those two things and sometimes even sort of uh, sort of use the score, use the music back in the background to sort of fuse those two different realities together and at other times really separate them and keep them apart and make you know just and feel how distinctive they are and that they should be, you know, like you're looking at it and like, okay, well now we're, you know, this isn't a situation where, you know, Rosamund Pike is going to slit Neil Patrick Harris's throat right while she's having sex with him. You know, this is just Ben Affleck dealing with um, the cops or dealing with the hospital or dealing with reporters. Um, or other times, you're like, oh no, I want them both to feel the same way. And I think that their score really lends itself to that. It's a very... Uh, what's, the, what's the term I'm looking for here? It's a very um, assertive score assertive is the word I want to say and it, it really forces you to sort of take notice and uh, for better or worse you know I think a lot of the times that's a good thing in this in Gone Girl because you know it for, kind of forces you to sit up and, and straighten your back and and pay attention um, to everything you know because there's a, this is a movie where this there are tiny details but they are very important um, and at times, I think it kind of is a little redundant because there are so many scenes where how can you not, how can you possibly look away? And uh, I think that maybe something a little more subtle might have been more effective. But I'm a big fan of the score, a uh, big fan of the movie. And so Gone Girl, number four in uh, original score. Number three, um, second nomination coming off of a win in the best special effects category is Hans Zimmer's Interstellar. Uh, Hans Zimmer has been around for quite some time. He has made some pretty iconic scores, pretty fantastic scores, some pretty big wham type sounds that are kind of the death of movie trailers now. But Interstellar uh, sounds big. It it sounds uh, very over the top and I think that's a good thing. I think uh, so many of Nolan's movies have have very big scores, and and that's for a reason. You know, they have incredibly big move. They're incredibly big movies. They are tackling huge things, huge issues from Dark Knight to Inception to Interstellar. Uh, You're dealing with things on on a pretty big scale, and Zimmer is kind of the perfect fit for those types of movies. He knows how to con- compose a, a score that is able to uh, capture the the enormity and the the um, overwhelming sense of of purpose that goes along with these films you know in interstellar you know you have these characters who are going from planet to planet to planet trying to effectively save the human race and so uh, you know when they get somewhere and it's not what they need it to be, you know, the score really reflects that. You know from the moment they land on that planet, oh no, that's not that's not the right one. That's not going to work. And, uh, you know, when you have a, 
something like a Matt Damon cameo, <laughs> like the score is able to kind of make that feel less less problematic than it might be. Um, so I really enjoyed Hans Zimmer's score in Interstellar. I think it's one of his better scores, uh, but probably not his best. It's a little too... Um, I don't know if this applies to, like, music, but, like, it feels kind of monosyllabic in a way. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels like you're... If, if I have any critique against the score, it's that it's it's kind of hitting the same note a lot, um, which is kind of what I mean when I say monosyllabic. So, for me, Hans Zimmer, Interstellar, is the third best score of the year. Uh, which moves us on to number two, um, another film that has already won an award tonight, and that is Whiplash, uh, for Justin Hurwitz, Whiplash, the score for Whiplash, that is our runner-up in Best Original Score, and, uh, really, the score ties the movie together, because it's tough when your, your movie has so much music in it, and it's not a musical, in a sense, uh, you know, the score has to, um, it has to work with the music in the movie, uh, as much as play opposite it, and Whiplash makes that tough, because the music in Whiplash, you know, when Miles Teller's on those drums, you know, that finale, that, all those scenes where they're on the drums, you know, those are, those are very captivating moments, and that you know you're paying attention. You want to hear that, and outside of those moments, the score is fairly subdued by comparison. And I think that's with great purpose. I think you want the moments that you stand up and take notice. The, you want the moments where the music is the most important to be when it's being played on the screen in front of you. And it's it's a testament to Hurwitz's skill that. The rest of the score can be very sub fairly subdued without feeling inconsequential. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it just disappears. It doesn't feel like it's worthless. It's important, but it's it's right. It's it's underneath the surface. You don't necessarily notice it every time. You don't necessarily connect to it, but it is it is there and it is it is beating. Um, in the chest, kind of, and it just kind of gives you a nice steady heartbeat throughout the film to to kind of keep you on pace, keep you uh, centered, and I think that's a, it's a very, I think that's a lot more difficult than you might expect, and so for me, Justin Hurwitz's score for Whiplash, number two in the year, which means that this year's best original score goes to Alexander Desplat for the Grand Budapest Hotel, which means Grand Budapest Hotel has now won two uh, awards out of four nominations. That is their fourth nomination. Uh, Desplat's score, Budapest Hotel, is my alluded to second favorite aspect of the movie. Uh, it just, it sounds so, so great. It really, it sounds amazing. It's a tough movie to score, I think. I, I mean, I think that's true with most Wes Anderson films. You you can't score them in any sort of conventional way. They have to sound 
the way that they look, and they look very odd. They're, they they sound, you know, the voices of the characters are very strange, and then the, the dialogue, and and the way that the film is presented is, you know, it's some it's it's symmetry is very unique among every the rest of the film landscape and the cinematic landscape, and so Despot has to come in and score this movie, and make the score kind of feel symmetrical and make the score very quirky and make the score um, fit with with the rest of the film that it's a part of and uh, that's a tough 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 ask uh, a big big um, endeavor and Desplat is an incredible composer uh, I think he's one of the the best working today and in my opinion, he, he really just knocks it out of the park. The film sounds so good, and I, I think it's um, it, it's really something something special and something unique. And and uh, one of my favorite my favorite score of the year, one of my favorite scores uh, ever, really. And um, yeah, thank that's all thanks to Alexander Splot Desplat. So number one, best score of the year, the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, notching its second win of the night. We are now, now we are going to move on to best original song. So you heard the mashup of, of nominees earlier. We are now going to give you a more extended and, and uh, singular listening experience for each one of them in turn and those are the nominees everything is awesome the lego movie Three years later, I shot the frosting. Smelling like a blossom, everything is awesome. Stepped in mud, got new brown shoes. Awesome to win, and it's awesome to lose. Awesome to lose. Fine on the outside, when Marnie was there. Glory, Selma. In the League of Justice, his power was the people. Enemy is lethal, a king became regal. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a bald ego. No one can win a war individually. It take the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy. Welcome to the story we call victory. The coming of the Lord, my eyes have seen the glory. One day.
The Hanging Tree, The Hunger Games, colon, Mockingjay, colon, part one. Are you, are you coming to the tree? They strung up a man, they say who murdered three. Strange things that happen here, no stranger would it be. If we met at midnight in the hanging tree. Love was my alibi. The water diviner. With uh, the number five song this year, uh, we go to the animated film of When Marnie Was There for the song Fine on the Outside. Uh, this is this is probably my most difficult category every year if there aren't enough musicals, as there really weren't this year. Um, there are a couple. There are three. The three big films uh, in this. In this category, the top three were pretty much auto-includes. Uh, they were very easy to, to, to find and track down and put into this um, category. But finally, Outside and uh, the number four film song uh, were not so easy. Like, they, they weren't necessarily songs I considered, thought of, remembered. Um, but Finding the Outside is a very good song. It really does sort of manage to capture the emotions and uh, uh, themes of when Marnie was there, which is a pretty great movie. It's, it's very um, solemn. It's, it's, it's very sort of low and, and um, tough to put... I don't know, it's, it's a very emotional song, and it really hits home, and if you watch the movie and you, you listen to the song, um, I believe it, I believe, and, and I'm not 100% sure about this, I believe it plays over the end credits, finally outside, when was there. I think so. I'm not sure. It, it's by Priscilla Ahn. Um, I think, I'm not sure. I don't remember. It's been quite some time since I saw the movie. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's a good song, and it fits with its movie, and that's pretty much all, all the criteria it needs to, to be included in the list. So for me, number five is When Marnie Was There. Number four um, is a song that... I don't know how this song became such a big hit, like it was on the radio all the time, and and obviously that was a kind of an edited version of the song. It wasn't the song featured in the film, but uh, it's the Hunger Games Mockingjay Part One, the Hanging Tree. And uh, so Jennifer Lawrence sings it. Her voice is fine. Um, she's not the most incredible singer in the world, but she's more than serviceable, more than adequate at, at what she has to do for this film. 
And uh, this isn't a song that is really trying to be, you know, Celine Dion or anything like that. It's only trying to go as far as being evocative. And in the film, I think it is. Uh, the film itself suffers for a lot of different reasons. This song is not one of them. I think that it, it really does serve as this gentle plea to sort of end all of the violence and all of the uh, um, um, aggravation and aggressive attacks against the outer um, colonies? Districts. Districts is the term. Uh, against all the dist uh, all the outer districts and uh, the fi the scene in the film where Jennifer Lawrence just kind of starts singing and you've got um, what's her name from Game of Thrones there filming the th whole thing you know it's a nice scene it's a very nice calm uh, but powerful scene and uh, one of my favorite scenes from the film which I'm otherwise kind of lukewarm on so uh, it it barely edges out. Uh, fine on the outside, but just just a little, just a little for number four spot. So that's the hanging tree from the Hunger Games Mockingjay Part One. Number three uh, is from the Water Diviner, and it is "Love Was My Alibi." This is I love this song. Uh, I heard it watching the film. I was a huge fan of it. it it's it's kind of been on my rotation for quite some time now. And it's incredibly exciting to me to listen to it. I don't know, it just it's very passionate, and uh, I love the voice. Um, Chris Vogelmark does the song. Uh, he is um, yeah, I don't know. he he he's got a fantastic voice that r is real passionate, and uh, you get a lot of emotion out of this song and and that. The, so the it's great. I love. The, I think the song itself is incredible. The problem is the song in it and and the film don't really go well together. I think that the song doesn't really have a place in the film. Uh, it feels very disconnected, and uh, that's the biggest reason why it doesn't rank any higher. Uh, it, it's just kind of sitting there. Um, sort of being its own incredible thing, whereas the film, uh, in one inst is firstly, uh, the Water Diviner is the lowest rated film uh, that has that is nominated at this year's Circle of Film Awards, and it just the, the film the song just does not fit with this movie, and so that disconnect and that um, lack of uh, being uh, just lack of being complementary to each other that kind of drops the, the 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 position a couple of spots so the water diviner love was my alibi is my number three uh this year but i still i i really do love the song i'll never watch the movie again i will listen to this song many 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 more times number two uh this will be the second nomination for selma and that is for glory the runner-up this year is glory by John Legend and Common from Selma. Uh, this song is incredibly powerful, very passionate, um, truly a, a song that uh, really, 
I don't, I don't know if I would say it really hit the zeitgeist as much as it probably should have, uh, but it's pretty fascinating, you know, listening to this song in the context of the film, because the film really only deals with um, think events that took place, you know, 40, 50 years ago, and the song combines those events with things that are happening now, and it does it very effortlessly. Uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't have ever, I don't know that I would say Common is like the best rapper, but you can really hear his, his, you know, his devotion and his, his power in this song. Uh, you know, he, he's maybe better than he's ever been in this song. Uh, and I think, it shows, and I think it's it's a testament to the message of the song and the movie, uh, how they work together so well, and why this song has been so uh, uh, heralded, I guess you could say. Um, it's uh, I, I think it's it's a great song, and I think it deserves all the praise it's been getting. But. As I mentioned, it is my runner-up. It it comes very very close, but does not quite, not quite work as well as everything is awesome in the Lego Movie. From the moment you hear this song, it's it's one of those songs where it starts out infectious. It turns into um, absolutely positively annoying and irritating and aggravating. And then you kind of come back around on it at, at a later point, and it just kind of fluctuates that way. And I think that is perfect for a song like this because it's not supposed to be, uh, you know, it's not supposed to be the most um, sort of easy listening types of song. It's incredibly high energy. There's not a lot of downbeats. There's there's just it's just ah oh, blasting in your face over and over and over and over and over again, and. It's repetitive, uh, it's it's kind of inane, it, it doesn't really make sense a lot of the time, but it's presenting this worldview that is happening in the Lego movie that is really odd and very strange and very difficult to comprehend uh, for people who don't. But the song captures all of it so perfectly. Uh, you know, the, the absurdity as the Lonely Island sort of lays out all these different scenarios where... Uh, no one in their right mind would possibly consider what's happening awesome, and yet these people do. Like you, you just you follow Emmett, and he literally does think all of this stuff is awesome, and that's the the way that this song works in conjunction with the film. The whole scene where the, everything is awesome plays, and and it just. It works to capture the the mood and the atmosphere of this of the Lego Movie so brilliantly and so beautifully that it, it's my undeniable number one this year. So that's number one. Everything is awesome. The Lego Movie, and uh, hope hope you can get it out of your head. Hope you can. Moving on to our next category, we are going to go to best scene this year. And the nominees are Track from Breathe, Assault from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Car Chase from Nightcrawler, Swing Low from Phoenix, and Drum Solo from Whiplash. 
pretty wide uh, array of films, making the best scene category this year. And uh, we are going to start with number five. And number five this year is Assault from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I kind of touched on this this, uh, this scene earlier when we were talking about the special effects from the film. Uh, this is the attack on the human compound uh, that the apes lodge, uh, launch. Lodge? Lodge? And... You know, it has that one moment where the camera just sticks on the gun on the tank's turret and just kind of spins around, and it's just the peak of of the the special effects going or the visual effects in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It showcases incredible, incredible uh, uh, just advancement in that technology that um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes did not have, and. The scene is action-packed. It's it's filled with, uh, you know, emotion, and you get these. You really finally, kind of for the first time, and and this they started to touch on this a little bit in Rise, uh, with the the bridge fight sequence, where you could really get a sense of just how powerful these apes were, how much more powerful they are than humans. But the whole goal of the bridge scene in Rise is to escape. It, you know, they are trying to get past the humans and not kill the humans. Whereas in Dawn, the whole point of this fight scene is to attack and kill the humans because of what they believe happened. Uh, because of the um, the un- unfortuitous circumstances that take place in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And this attack is very powerful, very painful, and and really shows you just what these apes are capable of when they are working together, when they are heated and angry, and man, this scene is one that always gets me, it really, you know, it just pumps me up, man, it just, it just, it's such a, such a strong showcase of the combination of all of these mocap actors uh, and all the human actors like not to shortchange any of them you know Gary Oldman Jason Clark uh, you know they have their own uh, time times to shine throughout this movie but this scene is really all about the apes and just how potent and powerful they really are so for me it's uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Number five, the assault scene. Number four is a scene from the film Breathe. This is directed by Melanie Laurent. And it is, I call it, I labeled the scene track scene. Uh, It's fairly self-explanatory if you've seen the film. Uh, the uh, The general idea is that our main character, Charlie, has, um breathing issues, asthma, and, and goes into panic attacks if they're not uh, satisfied and, and qualmed uh, quickly. And in this particular scene, she is running in the on the track with a couple of other students at her school, and as she continues to run, she starts to feel this overwhelming sort of anxiety and pressure and, and weight on top of her, and it just keeps keeps pushing, pushing, and pushing down further and harder on top of her until, you know, she she slowly passes all of the other kids running on the track who have either stopped or or slowed down. 
and she keeps running and she keeps running and it, it's it's incredibly evocative she she begins to kind of flail as she runs because her breathing is haggard and and tough to control until ultimately she she drops to the ground and uh, has a panic attack and the the way the scene is shot so it's it's while she's running the the camera is just always in front of her just always in front of her and as soon as she drops to the ground suddenly we're seeing things from her point of view and we watch as all these other students um gather around her on top of her and no one it you know it's not and no one like immediately is like helping her out or just kind of staring at her and it's it's this perfect um thematic metaphor for the whole film which is that Charlie spends the entire film trying to solve all of her problems by herself, trying to do everything she can, everything um, without anybody's help. And when things go badly for her and when th- bad things happen in the film to her, everyone else is just kind of standing around and watching. No one's helping her out because she has been doing things by herself and, and kind of has left uh, everyone else who, who was her friend at the start of the movie or before the film's narrative timeline begins has just kind of you know shifted and moved to the sidelines in that sense so i i'm a big fan of this movie um there's other scenes in this movie that are also incredible uh that um i just think this is the perfect amalgamation of the whole film and and what it, it it's trying to say and to me that makes it the best scene um, there's definitely more shocking scenes, particularly toward the end of the film, but this one is, is my favorite, and, uh, I encourage you to go check it out if you haven't. I know I did, uh, a review episode for it already, but, um, just, uh, harping on it a little more, uh, to, to go check it out. So that's the track scene from Breathe in at number four. Moving on to number three. We have a scene from the film Phoenix, uh, and this scene I call Swing Low. Uh, it happens at the end of the film when our main character, uh, played by uh, Nina Haas, uh, begins to sing the song Swing Low. If you haven't seen Phoenix, um, I'm going to try to not spoil the whole thing with this explanation of the scene uh, as best I can. And uh, the whole idea of the scene is Nina Haas's character singing this song in front of a lot of other people, uh, and uh, she has there's a man playing the piano with her, and through her singing of this song, and it's it's a very beautiful rendition of Swing Low, one of my favorite just finales of a movie and and, and performances of a song in a movie, and throughout during the performance, uh, you know, it starts out a little a little hesitant, a little. Um, unconfident, uh, but she she so slowly builds up and, and really lets this song embody her and flow through her as it progresses up into the point where there's a realization uh, that happens partway through the song, and uh, you know it is it is a beautiful realization. It is a picturesque sort of. Um, I would say kind of storybook ending, but not in a positive way necessarily, in a more of a much more sort of apprehensive, lukewarm way, if that makes any sense. 
Uh, I guess what I mean by storybook is that it kind of like it fits in perfectly with the narrative. And um, you, you see it and you're like, okay, obviously this is happening. And as it happens, it's just, it's, it's such a powerful moment and it's such a powerful scene. And um, I'm sure even my description of it isn't exactly doing it justice as I'm trying to kind of sidestep around the, the specifics. But it's, it's in a foreign language. It's, it's not in English. Um, as is Breathe, for, for that matter. Breathe is also in a foreign language. But uh, I really do encourage you to go check out Phoenix if you, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't heard of it. Um, it really is a beautiful movie, and it takes you places. It really does. So number three for me is Swing Low um, from the movie Phoenix. Okay, moving on to number two. Uh, we have... Nightcrawler coming in at number two with the scene car chase uh, and, and Nightcrawler is um, it's a great movie it's an incredible film and I think that this scene maybe doesn't embody the whole film <laughs> entirely but it is one of the best scenes uh, in the film it's the best scene in the film in my opinion and I believe you can find uh, most, if not all, of this entire scene on YouTube. Uh, it is it is pretty harrowing, pretty terrifying, and and culminates in uh, the best moment of the film, uh, not scene but moment, um, which is uh, you. So you're watching, and actually there might be multiple car chases in this movie. So to specify, I am referring to the moment, basically the, the kind of big finale type of thing where Riz Ahmed, Jake Gyllenhaal are both trailing this, this police chase and they get to this accident at the end of it and uh, there's, there's some crazy shit that goes down. Uh, the, the actions that Jake Gyllenhaal's character takes are, are reprehensible and yet you totally believe them. They are perfectly in line with his character. And that's kind of terrifying. Uh, so that is that is really hor- horrific to watch and, and to, to believe that a person could do what happens. And it's, um, it's very tough. It's very tough to watch. But it is perf- it's the perfect embodiment of at least Jake Gyllenhaal's character. And the arc that he takes through this film, it really is the culmination of everything bad that he has been doing and, and involved, been involving him with himself with in. Uh, and so for, you know, Nightcrawler has so many great scenes in it. Um, it really is a fantastic film. But for me, this, this car chase sequence, you know, it starts at start, starting from the diner, the car chase uh, which is which is fantastic and and exciting and exhilarating all in its own. But then the just the icing and and cherry on top is what transpires when the cha- car chase element of the scene ends and we get the sort of resolution. Uh, it's 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 a very difficult difficult thing to watch, but it is so perfect for for what it is supposed to be. So for me, runner-up this year for best scene, cart the car chase from Nightcrawler, really fantastic scene, but it is not 
in my opinion, as good as the drum solo at the end of Whiplash. This is everything that this movie is about, okay? You get... So you have Miles Teller arriving late to the performance. Uh, you have him slotting himself back in to uh, play the drums in this performance. J.K. Simmons noticeably irritated, noticeably upset. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, as as the performance continues, um, they kind of end one of their songs. And that's right where this scene starts. And it's Miles Teller who continues to play. And it's kind of, it's not, it's not loud, it's not boisterous, it's very soft, and he just continues to play. And he gets this look from J.K. Simmons, like, what are you doing? What's happening right now? What's going on? Why, why are you doing this? And Miles Teller just looks at him, and he's like, I'll, 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 I'll help you in. I'll help you. I forget the phrase. He's like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get you into this. I'll help you into this. And J.K. Simmons just kind of looks at it. He's got this, like perplexed but like uh, like the audacity on this kid right like I've been beating him up figuratively emotionally mentally all movie and the the, the audacity that he has to command me to let tell me when I can go in like that's absurd and you know you can tell he doesn't want to go for this but then Miles Teller just keeps playing the drums. He's he's he goes further. He goes harder. He it's picking up the rhythm. He's picking up the rhythm, and all and slowly you see the realization on on J.K. Simmons' face, and he's like, "Okay, we're gonna roll with this. We're gonna give this up. We're we're gonna, I'm I'm, I'm in. I'm in on whatever's happening. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy into this." And so he starts. Um, uh, he starts. Uh, what's the, directing? Um, conducting. Conducting. He starts conducting. Miles Teller as he continues to play the drums and and the music gets louder and the drum hitting the drums get louder and and it's and it's more violent and and it's more evocative and you can start to see the sweat dripping off of Miles Teller's face as he gets faster and he gets faster and he gets faster and he gets faster and, he gets faster and then he builds it up and he builds it up and you've got J.K. Simmons standing there like three feet away from the drum set just constantly like somehow without actually doing anything but like moving his hands he is impressing upon miles teller the the urgency and the power that is happening in this film and the and that's that's in this this brief and small performance that is going on and it just it builds and 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 it gets stronger and more powerful and it finally crescendos in this almost imperceptible way uh, you know, as someone who's never played the drums, uh, it's it's far. It seems all like and so impressive to me, like watching what ha- what is happening. And J.K. Simmons, you can see the sort of uh, uh, um, astonished joy on his face, just kind of peeking out beneath this veneer of of a serious and um, kind of. Um, used to being uh, in control teacher and he is you can tell just how happy and excited he is that you know he he has to reattach um part of the drum set that falls off during the scene and he is totally in he is totally all about this and he is uh, you know he is giving no quarter he is completely um sold on what is going on and 
it, you know, eventually he involves the rest of the, the band and, and ensemble. And man, it is just so powerful, so evocative, so such a, a potent uh, uh, scene that I've, I've seen that scene three, four times more than I've seen the movie Whiplash, which is an incredible movie and like not something I'm, I'm opposed to watching again and again. But that scene in and of itself is, is truly, truly something special. And uh, Damien Chazelle directs the hell out of that scene and the film in general. So for me, that's, that's the best scene of this, this year. And that's the drum solo from Whiplash, which gives Whiplash its second win of the night, tying Grand Budapest Hotel right now. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel has four nominations. Whiplash, this is its third nomination and second win. Uh, so that's, uh, that's where we stand statistically. Let's move on to our eighth category here. We're going to move on to Best Director. That's right, Best Director coming in at the eight, in the 8th category. And the nominees for Best Director in 2014 are Damien Chazelle, Whiplash, Ava DuVernay, Selma, Alejandro Inaritu, Birdman, Melanie Laurent, Breathe, and Richard Linklater, Boyhood. All right, we're going to start out the Best Director category with Melanie Laurent. She is the latest entry into the entire uh, the awards ceremony this year and really kind of came away with... I, know, I was so impressed by, by her, her direction in Breathe. Um, she gets incredible performances out of her actors. She creates a very taut story uh, and... and one that really gets underneath your skin. Uh, you know, she is, in my opinion, like the odd name out in this list, this best director lineup, and I don't have any problems with that. You know, she is, you know, I think she stole the spot from um, uh, the director of Wild Tales at the very last second, and it's uh, Damien Suffron. She t she stole his spot at the very last second. I think this I think Breathe maybe not the the best film in this lineup, but one of uh, certainly deserves its spot as one of the best director directing efforts. Uh, just this is such a such a simple story with a a huge huge bombastic ending, and uh, it, it's something that could have seemed very lifetimey. It's something that could have seemed like a very YA movie, and it never feels that way. Uh, Laurent really does direct it more like a drama thriller uh, than anything else, and it only serves to to emphasize how big of a deal such such simple things can be when you're a kid and when you don't necessarily have much besides high school in your life, and uh, you know you have this friend uh, that you you start to care about. And as the film moves on, you start to realize that, oh, well, wait a second, this is, maybe this isn't quite as uh, picturesque as, as you might have thought. Maybe, you know, you get this sense that, you know, you, you're watching a movie and, or, no, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that when you, 
you, you have friends, and, and this is something, you know, that they touch on in, uh, I guess, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or one of those books, uh, where um, the youngest girl takes a, finds this book, and, and it allows her to look and, and see what her friends are saying about her behind her back. And when if you, you know, everyone, I think everyone has had some small doubt about one of their friends at some point as to whether they were actually real in, in the way that they felt and, and the friendship that they were offering. But it's so difficult and you can never truly know, you know, what another person is thinking. Whether they tell you what it is they're thinking or not, you can never know 100% for sure what they're thinking unless you're inside their head and that's impossible. And the problem is that you get that one little twinge of doubt and the entire friendship unravels. And that is part of what's happening here in Breathe. And, you know, that's such a very, you know, high school type of thing to happen. Uh, you know, you don't exactly, you know, that that's far less common when you're an adult and you're dealing with coworkers or something, you know. You, you kind of expect coworkers more than, like, classmates, for some reason, to, to be... Uh, fake in a way at least that's my my opinion my impression and uh, breathe manages to sell you on on just how important this kind of stuff is and I think most films that treat you know teenage issues like more than just quote-unquote teenage issues uh, are far more successful than their counterparts Um, and so for me I love breathe I'm really excited for further work from Melanie Laurent because this showcases a lot of great talent and uh, promise. So that's Breathe, Melanie Laurent, number five. Number four, we move up to Ava DuVernay for Selma. Uh, Selma is a brilliantly crafted film. It, It really does manage to convey the heart and strength that um, Martin Luther King Jr. exhibited and embodied in his life. I think, I don't know that there there would be anybody better served directing this film, directing this story, than Ava DuVernay. Uh, She draws some incredible performances out of her cast. She sets this movie up in a very sort of, it's a very straightforward presentation, you know, she's not trying to do a lot of tricks with, with the film, with the editing, you know, this isn't, um, about embellishing what really happened, you know, she understands that the actual events themselves, the truth behind this movie and this story is powerful in and of itself, and it doesn't need anything else, it doesn't need, uh, to be embellished, it doesn't need to be, um, overrepresented in any way, and I think that is my my favorite aspect of, of Selma's direction is just how much DuVernay just allows the film to speak for itself and allows the words and allows the characters and the message and the themes and the events to really speak for themselves and um, present this, this harrowing and horrifying time period um, that truthfully has not resolved itself yet. And, and that's scary. And Selma finds a way to bridge the gap between today and 
the time of the events than when they took place. It's not just a period piece. It, it feels very contemporary. It feels very modern. And I love that. I really, I love that element of things. I think that makes it all the more accessible. Um, so Selma is my number four for Ava DuVernay, who is a fantastic director. Fantastic director. Number three. Um, this film won Best Screenplay, but only comes in third at Best Director, and that's Alejandro Inarritu for Birdman. Uh, so Birdman, as I, you know, I've talked about it a lot already. This is its fourth nomination tonight so far, and it's directed real well. Uh, it, it really is. It has a. It's fantastically directed, but it's it's all kind of the same, and and that's not necessarily uh, the biggest uh, critique. You know, it, when your film is all one, or at least pr- pretends to be one shot without any cuts, uh, that is an incredible feat, and and not certainly not one I want to sort of brush off as not being incredible, but, you know, the, the sort of, it's, it's not easy to, to make that work, certainly, at all, but, in my opinion, the directors that are ranked above, uh, you know, you two in this list, succeed far better at their, with their films, because they are, um, they have so many more, so much more variety of, of shots, uh, of composition, of editing to, to work with. And for Birdman, it looks amazing. Uh, you know, the stitches and, and the hidden cuts are, are not always very easy to find. And um, the result is, is fantastic. But um, as we move on, as we move up, I do think that the, the sort of styles of these other films and the variety in which uh, they're... they're themes are, not themes, but the variety in the directing in these other films lends themselves to, in my opinion, uh, being more of an achievement than what Birdman is. Just, just my opinion. Just my opinion. But I do, I do love Birdman. I do love Inner E2's direction. I think he more than deserves this nomination and uh, certainly deserves the win in screenplay. So, number three Alejandro Inarritu for Birdman. Number two, the runner-up for Best Director is Damien Chazelle for Whiplash. Talked about it when I uh, was talking about Best Scene, which Whiplash won, and I think that uh, the most, you know, this is a movie about, like, a jazz drummer. Not, uh, jazz, I don't know, drummer. And it features an absolutely incredible performance from J.K. Simmons, and all of that kind of culminates with Giselle's direction, which is, uh, I don't know, as close to perfect as it can be without being perfect. Uh, it's 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 a very simple story, you know. It's just kind of a we've seen this story a lot of the time, to- a lot of times in sports movies, you know. You get this young, ambitious person who strives to be the best at something and has a challenging teacher, 
and suffers some setbacks and ultimately swoops in and, and wins the day at the end. And that's not new. Like, that narrative is not new. It's the direction that Chazelle offers and brings to the film that sets it apart. Um, and then when you layer on top the absolutely incredible final sequence of the film, um, the impeccable score, and and even the performances that aren't J.K. Simmons. Uh, Miles Teller's performance in this is, is very, very good. And all of that really creates a, a fantastic film. And uh, Damien Chazelle's direction is, is really... Um, beautiful it, it it makes the film flow it's it's a very quick movie it's not a long movie he he's able to kind of go in and out of the story as fast as he needs to be and sets up these musical moments uh, uh you know of teller playing the drums perfectly flawlessly makes them feel authentic and organic and you always get the sense that what's happening on screen is really happening in front of you and uh, that's such a credit and testament to Chazelle's film filming and, and his direction because he brings you in, you know, he makes you part of this movie, and uh, that's it's really it's really impressive. It's really really good. So for me, number two this year's runner-up for best director is Damien Chazelle for Whiplash, which means which means our winner, best director this year, 2014, is. Richard Linklater for Boyhood. Uh, after four nominations, Boyhood finally pulls in a win for Richard Linklater. Or four nominations for Boyhood, not for Richard Linklater. Uh, four nominations for Boyhood. Richard Linklater finally gets them the win, uh, and it is an impressive one. Richard Linklater is a very, uh, you know, he has been around as a director for quite some time with the Before trilogy and beyond. And Boyhood is kind of his, you know, it's it's an incredible feat. What he what he was able to accomplish in Boyhood is 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 any you know it, it's an epic achievement. And you know anyone who thinks that it's not, I, I don't I don't know who you're kidding. Um, whether or not you like the film, whether you not appreciate what he was trying to do, the fact that he was able to do it in and of itself, is such a massive undertaking and really, really shows how, how committed he is to a story, to a, to a timeline, to, to, his performance, to the performances of his actors, to everyone involved in the movie. And I, I, I love Boyhood. I think it's an incredible movie. And, uh, you know, the, just the, the time span, you know, for, for, Linklater to have to approach this film um, throughout each, uh, you know, every year, every two years or so, however often he was able to find the time to film parts of it, it, it really shows just what his devotion was, his commitment was to this this project, and um, it's it's truly something special, truly something uh, unique. And that you're not going to see every day at, at the theater. So, for me, best director this year, Richard Linklater for Boyhood. And uh, I don't know who... I, I, it was not... You know, I, I ever since I saw the film, like that was my runaway favorite for best director. It was always at my top of my list. So, Boyhood, Richard Linklater, best director. 
And now we move on to our penultimate category here, which is best lead performance. Uh, we got 10, 10 nominees here, um, and they are one, two, three, four, five, and five men to women this year. Uh, let's uh, let's read the nominees. For Get On Up, Chadwick Boseman. For Two Days, One Night, Marianne Cotillard. For Calvary, Brendan Gleeson. For Nightcrawler, Jake Gyllenhaal. For Phoenix, Nina Haas. For Breathe, Josephine Joppy. For Birdman, Michael Keaton. For Gone Girl, Rosamund Pike. For Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Andy Serkis. And for Ex Machina, Alicia Vikander. A lot of lead performances. Uh, a lot of movies covered here. Uh, two movies that have not shown up yet uh, in Calvary and Two Days, One Night. And, um, yeah, just a lot, a lot of great performances to start. Let's go with number 10 to start us off, and that is Brendan Gleeson for Calvary. If you haven't seen Calvary, the main conceit of the film uh, is that Brendan Gleeson is a priest, pastor, um, something to that effect. Uh, and uh, things are just kind of going wrong in his parish. And uh, Brendan Gleeson plays this role beautifully. Uh, he's, he's a brilliant actor. He's been around for so long and then has so many absolutely... Um, monumental roles in his life and this this film is just one of the many uh, just I don't know pick, uh, this isn't going to be the first time that he's nominated this isn't going to be uh, the only time and uh, Brennan Gleason in Calvary is is really bringing a pathos and an emotion that I haven't I don't see a lot from his characters he is often uh, just a very, very rough and and an aggressive character in movies. You know, he he gets that gruff. Uh, he, he just just sort of um, bare knuckles approach. I think a lot of the times, and this is a film where you really see him bear down uh, on on the the more passionate side. Of his of his performances, and I think it, it serves him very very well in the film. I think he he's capable and able to bring out something even more special uh, because of it. And so I I'm a big fan of his performance in this movie and, and of him in, in general. And I think Calvary, check it out if you haven't seen it. Brendan Gleeson is incredible in the movie, and it's. Um, it's great. It's it's you get it. There's a fantastic scene between Brendan Gleeson and Donald Gleeson, who has a small role in the film, and and Donald Gleeson plays. Uh, it's been a while. I, I think he plays. He's in prison, and he. Pl I think it's like a child rapist or or someone who had child pornography or or just a very despicable human being, and the fa fascinating dynamic between in that scene between those characters is is really something 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 special and something wonderful to see. So my number 10, Brendan Gleeson from Calvary. My number 9 is a brilliant young performance from Breathe and that's Josephine Joppy, 
who I'm sure I'm pronouncing correctly. Uh, but uh, Josephine Janapi is uh, the main character in Breathe uh, from Melanie Laurent. And uh, she is really tasked with a lot of difficult moments uh, in this movie. She has to come off uh, sort of sweet and, and sort of like a victim for a lot of the movie. But at one some point in the movie, everything kind of switches off. And all of a sudden, she is the, the aggressor. And we have to buy that. Uh, she is the only real character at play in the scene the film was nominated for, the track scene. She is perfect in that scene, um, making you really buy into the desperation in her face and in her breathing. She is just a very visceral performer in this movie, and <clears throat> I was just put on, you know, put on edge by by her her her, her performance the whole way through, and uh, I was very impressed. I was very very impressed by it, and uh, you know, credit to Melanie the Ramp for getting the performance out of her. Credit to her for having the performance in her. I'm excited to see her to further go further with with this and uh, I think it's um, it's really really no noteworthy and and hopefully she can find greater success going down the line and maybe show up here uh, again in the years to come so that's Josephine Jappy 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 I don't know from breathe number nine number eight from this year um, and the fifth nomination for Birdman is Michael Keaton. Uh, so he is the anchor that holds Birdman together. We follow him for almost the entirety of the film. Very few scenes that don't feature Michael Keaton in Birdman. And uh, that requires a lot of strength on his part to carry the film and also to have the most screen time in a film that is supposed to have no cuts in it. And uh, I think like Despite, you know, obviously the film's supposed to have no cuts, but it does. But even though it does have cuts, the all the f shots in this movie are still incredibly long. Like 10, 15 minutes long. Uh, from, from an interview I saw that Edward Norton was talking about it in. Um, so, like, that's a lot of pressure on an actor. You know, if you're not a, you know, if you're not trained on the stage, you know, and if you've only ever really been in movies, you're not really used to having to go on for forever and forever and forever. And Keaton is just brilliant in Birdman. He's he's aggressive at times. You can get his vulnerability uh, when he's dealing with his daughter, with his his ex and, and the reporters, and he gets angry and he gets withdrawn. And his emotions really sort of cover the spectrum in, in the best way. Uh, I, I think he's he's at the top of his game in Birdman. I don't I don't think I'd seen a better performance from him in the past, and that is a true true testament to just how brilliant he is in this movie. Uh, he is very impressive and uh, really is the the glue that holds Birdman together. So that's number eight, Michael Keaton from Birdman. Number seven, the seventh best performance in the, of, of, for a lead actor this year for me is from Phoenix, and that's Nina Haas, who 
Uh, as I mentioned in the best scene category, uh, ends with that brilliant rendition of, of Swing Low. But her performance throughout the entire film is uh, incredible. You know, she is... The film uh, is, is post-World War II Germany. Um, and so... It, it deals with... Uh, trying to... It's a drama. Uh, she Nina Haas plays a survivor of the concentration camps. Uh, who is searching for her husband. And the sort of twinge to that that story is that uh, she was betrayed by her husband and given up to the Nazis by him. Uh, so it's not, you know, necessarily a story of reconciliation. It is much more than that. And and Nina Haas is able to convey that, that conflict and that anguish on her face so well um, and, and really sell you on this this need and this this primal need to to achieve um, to, or just to just to satisfy her her own curiosities and and re- resolve this this uh, this distraught uh, and depressing feeling she's had for how, however long for all these years she's spent in the concentration camp because of her husband and that is a tough tough role to undertake and she not only succeeds but succeeds in style and in spades and uh it's a fantastic film um that's the second nomination for phoenix and uh it truly deserves it nina haas is absolutely incredible moving on to our number six uh this is the other film that makes its debut in this category and will be its only nomination and that is Two Days, One Night for Marianne Cotillard. In the film, she plays sort of like an activist uh, who woman who is trying to rally her felt like her neighbors uh, to man, I'm not really blanking on this one uh, to, to rallies her neighbors to uh, give up their bonuses Okay, to to allow her to keep her job. So um, she is uh, sort of fired, I guess. Not sort of, but she is fired. She is let go from her position. And the reason is because there's not enough money for her to continue to work at her job. And she discovers or is told, I don't remember, I think she just discovers that all of her coworkers are receiving a bonus. And that if they didn't receive this bonus, uh, they could, the company could fund her position. And so it's her trying to ask other people to sacrifice the money that they desperately need uh, to allow her to have the money that she desperately needs. So there's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of drama. And you basically just kind of get to watch Marianne Cotillard walk around um, <laughs> uh, this, this little French town and uh, try to convince other people to give up money. And I think it's it's a brilliant film, really good film, and its biggest asset is Marianne Cotillard's performance. She is one of the best actors right now, and this is one of, this is a fantastic film, and, and she gives everything she has to this role. And a film that could have otherwise been very lukewarm and pedestrian, really rises above uh, because of her performance and uh, I'm, I'm 
very, very impressed by by the film itself and by Marion Cotillard in it. So my number six, Two Days, One Night, um, Marion Cotillard. Number five. Uh, this is the second nomination for Get On Up, and that's Chadwick Boseman. I mentioned him when we were talking about the tactile effects nomination for Get On Up. Uh, Chadwick Boseman has played a lot of of, of real-life people uh, in his career, and James Brown is perhaps the best performance he's given of a real human being. And it's not just his mannerisms. It's not even his voice. You know, he's dancing and singing just like Brown. He's, you know, I would not have, you could have convinced me that it was actually James Brown. Like, if I didn't know what he looked like, this was him. This is exactly who he is. Uh, Your mileage may vary depending on your familiarity with James Brown uh, in your lifetime. But for my money, uh, Chadwick Boseman is, is flawless. A flawless not even imitation. It's it's a flawless depiction of of who James Brown is, and I think uh, that is a testament to Bozeman's own um, prowess as an actor. So I'm looking forward to great things to come from him, and I think that this is just a just one more notch in his belt as he continues to um, have an incredible career. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Chadwick Boseman, get on up as James Brown, my number five um, best lead performance of 2014. Number four, this is the third nomination for Gone Girl, and that's Rosamund Pike. She is amazing. Uh, she, she gives this performance her everything, and she is deliciously terrifying and scary in Gone Girl, um, able to just, you, I think, for me, it all hits once you get this cutaway to the actual truth of what is happening to her, when you cut away from Ben Affleck, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes into the movie, and you see Rosamund Pike escaping and running away, and, and having put all these events into motion, that is the best scene, those are the best scenes for her. Now, obviously, you can point to a lot of the sort of conniving, underhanded moments she has when she kills Neil Patrick Harris, and and when she's um, just constantly fighting with Ben Affleck, but it's these sort of in-between scenes that I I personally really love, you know, when she's staying in this, this, like, hotel, and this log cat, like, all these weird places she's staying to kind of stay out of the public eye, I think she's giving her, that's when her best work is in this film, uh, because it's so, it's such a huge contrast in, uh, from, from the rest of it, and really shows you her, not only her commitment to what she's done, but also to the, but also it shows you, you know, what she wants, you know, it's, it's, you know, it shows her trying to, like, live a different life and and the excitement that that brings her. And I think that that's, that's something that she is very successful at showcasing and displaying for us. So I've big, been a big fan of this performance all year. Uh, it ultimately lands at my in my number four slot, um, but it is not, uh, it is not a, 
not a not a mark against the film whatsoever. Uh, loved Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl. She is my number four lead performance in 2014. Moving up to my number three performance this year. Uh, this year happens to, uh, you know, uh, a female is the highest ranked female in the best lead performance category is number three this year, and that is Alicia Vikander for Ex Machina. I talked about this a bit when we talked about Donald Gleason. This is the fourth nomination for Ex Machina in this year, and uh, it is they are winless at this point. Alicia Vikander, uh, I had not seen her before Ex Machina, and she bursts onto the scene. She is perfect, absolutely perfect, uh, because she has to be as an android, a artificial intelligence. Not, I guess, yeah, not an android, or just an, or no, android, artificial intelligence. Uh, she's brilliant. Um, she make you know, just like I was saying with Donald Gleason, you know, he is a human being who knows that Elise Vikander is not a human being, but is also trying to determine if he's able to determine if she is or is not a human being. Uh, the same sort of thing applies to Vikander. She is actually a human being playing someone who's not a human being that is attempting to convince another human being that she is a human being, even though she knows she's not, and also not trying to betray the notion that, like, She's being sinister. Like, she, she's not trying to do it in a very sinister way. It's not like, oh, I'm going to convince you I'm human one way or another. It's just, I'm being myself, and I know that your purpose here is to try to determine whether or not I pass uh, the Turing test, but I can't, like, focus on that, but I kind of have to focus on that because, like, that's all I can think about, but am I thinking about it at all? And meanwhile, she has this entire other... Uh, side plot between her and Oscar Isaac, which is fascinating, and her relationship with um, just the rest of of his um, creations, as it were, is also something interesting. And uh, you you really get a sense as as the story builds and as the film sort of culminates and crescendos at the end uh, of just how much this story has been hers the whole time. And she is the driving force behind the film. Uh, we are led to believe for a period of time, for about the first half of the film maybe even, that it's Donald Gleason leading, this, leading the way on this film. But it is not. It is Vikander. She is the one who drives the story, drives the film, and ultimately is the one we follow at the end. Uh, she is the resolution of the film. And I, I, it's a fantastic film. Vikander gives a fantastic performance, infinitely better than the the crap she pulls in um, the Danish Girl, which I'm not a fan of. But Ex Machina is is a brilliant role for her, and uh, so it's my number three this year, my favorite female lead performance, and uh, that's Alicia Vikander for Ex Machina. My number two. Uh, is the only mocap performance on this year's list, and that is Andy Serkis for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, uh, rising to the challenge, rising to the height uh, of of Caesar to be a lead after being a supporting role in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Andy Serkis has further come into his own and continues to impress me with his ability to embody characters who aren't actually physically looking like him, uh, just like he does 
in in Lord of the Rings as Gollum. Uh, Andy Serkis is just just so impressive. Uh, you know, his his mannerisms and the way that he is capable of commanding the screen while not really even being on it is is so impressive and so so tough to to have pulled off and he's able to do it so he makes it seem so easy uh so many motion capture performances or, or a lot of even voice roles you hear their voice and you're just like okay that's uh, i i know who that is i i can see their i can see their face under the features i can see this i can see that i know that person i'm thinking about it. i'm watching this disney movie and i'm like oh well that's just mandy Moore. like uh you know but caesar is caesar uh, you know, this this is a role and a character and a performance that never puts you in doubt uh, of, of what you're watching. And that's all the more impressive because what you're watching is an ape talk. And not only talk, but, but you know, function as a real member of, like, a society and interact with other humans. And it makes perfect sense. And it seems absolutely flawless, uh, which is a testament to the visual effects team. And also to Circus's just performance, you know, he is physically embodying this character and making the, uh, Caesar uh, who he is. You know, he's doing the voice. He is all the he is the facial expressions. He is the body language, and it's all the more difficult to act. You know, it's it's difficult to act as someone you're not. It's more difficult to act as a, a gender or or species that you aren't. And Circus is able to pull that off so well acting as this ape Caesar and I I am endlessly impressed by by Andy Serkis as a performer and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Caesar is is one of his most incredible performances I cannot wait for the third film in this trilogy because I haven't seen it yet because it's not out yet right this is 2014 uh and uh I can't wait to see what we're we're the next level of this performance because it's just constantly getting better you know the more more rope more more leash they give him it's getting even better and even better but that is the runner-up which means our winner for 2014 best lead performance in a movie goes to nightcrawler in its third nomination for jake gyllenhaal uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is a very, very committed performer. He has been in a lot of movies. He has, you know, all the way going back to Donnie Darko up to Nightcrawler. You know, he has been there. Uh, he has played a lot of different types of characters, uh, even, you know, from Donnie Darko to something like The Bubble Boy to to Nightcrawler to, to um, what else has he been in? Uh, to to um, end of end of watch, uh, to end of watch, yeah, to end of watch, to um, I'm trying to think, it's um, the train movie that with the time looping that I, I'm blanking on. Uh, man, just look up Jake Gyllenhaal movies. Uh, he's been uh, to Brokeback Mountain, which I don't know how I forgot. To Prisoners, to to all these different movies that he's been in, and, and um, just has had such fantastic performances in Enemy, Source Code was the name of the movie I was looking for. 
um, to Jarhead, to Zodiac, uh, to to October Sky. Uh, it's it's really really impressive his breadth of of performances and roles. And Nightcrawler is kind of is in my opinion his best performance yet. Uh, he is this shallow-faced uh, kind of guy who spends all of his days um, sort of inside drinking Mountain Dew looking person, but he is a committed uh, and and talented um, I don't know what the term would be uh, I mean I don't know, there's a term that they use in the movie that I, I'm blanking on and I can't think of it um, he's like a scavenger, um, he's a cameraman, um, I thought they used a different term, though. Cameraman, though. We'll go with cameraman. He's a cameraman who's capturing crimes and, and things like that on a scale of, of very strange and, and not normal, um, dimensions. And he... His, his roles and his scenes with Rene Russo, his scenes with Riz Ahmed, anytime he is just in a crime as it's happening or he's filming it, you really do see and understand that he's, he's just in love with what he's doing in a really strange and bizarre way. And it really it comes across on his face. It, it's vibrant. It's visceral. It's terrifying. I, you know, more... Than any other person on this list, I, I think Jake Gyllenhaal really draws you in and is able to show, convince you that, like, if you saw him on the street, you know, looking at all similar to his character in Nightcrawler, you'd be terrified that that's who it is, and and that he's only around you because something bad is about to happen and he wants to film it, and maybe he even helped cause it, and. You know his his sort of dissension into this madness is uh, terrifying and very scary, and uh, you know Dan Gilroy, who wrote the screenplay, gives um, gives Jake Gyllenhaal some some fantastic dialogue to play with and and direction to work with as he as he embodies this character and it, it's really uh really really creepy <laughs> it's real creepy real creepy but that said it is my favorite lead performance that my best lead performance of 2014 that's jake gyllenhaal for nightcrawler and i'm so so impressed by what he was able to do with this movie uh, this is this is his movie, and he he gets a lot to do, and he makes the best use of all of it. So, with that win, uh, we are now entering our final category. That is best picture, best picture from 2014, and the nominees are Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Lego Movie. Whiplash, and Wild Tales. Uh, five films making it into this year's Best Picture Race, uh, as always. But for a first, I think, none of these films come, bring with it a Best Lead Actor Performance nomination. 
all of these films were absent of that category. Uh, only two of the films uh, in this list, Whiplash and Boyhood, even have a supporting performance role that was nominated for them. Uh, all of them have been nominated at least twice. This is the fifth nomination for Whiplash, Grand Budapest Hotel, and Boyhood, which ties Birdman for the year with the total nom- number of nominations at five. And uh, we're going to start with our number five of the year, and that is Wild Tales, my number five this year. Uh, I talked about it a lot when I talked about screenplay, and I'm basically going to be reiterating some of that stuff here in that it is a fantastic sequence and series of vignettes that really do work together in a beautiful way and and come across so um just just it's it's depiction of of human behavior and and its presentation of just the way that people interact and and the way that they act and and how they work together um it's it's really something fascinating you know these six stories that take place uh they are equally as mesmerizing as the last and it is their overall and joint commentary on human nature that raises this film to be more than just uh the sum of its parts and uh Damien Sifron who directed and wrote the film uh, just just knocked this one out of the park. It is an incredible movie, um, my, one of my favorites of the year, and uh, really deserves a look if you haven't checked it out yet. So my number five best film of the year is Wild Tales. My number four uh, winner of the best, dire- best director, Kaffa, this year is Boyhood in its fifth nomination. Uh, Richard Linklater's film is 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 unique. It's one of a kind, but it is also not my favorite film. Uh, it, it's you know when I compare it to some of the other films he's made, I, I like and and I appreciate and I think that those are better. And uh, ultimately, Boyhood falls at number four this year, which is obviously no small feat in and of itself. But man, it, it's. It's a long movie. I think of all the films in this top five in these in this category, it is the one that has aged uh, the worst. And not that that means it's bad by any stretch. It is still incredible, still fantastic film. But uh, I, I I'm concerned it's only gonna it's it's my opinion of it will only wane as as the years pass. Um, I. I hope that's not the case. I think it's an incredible achievement. I'm so impressed by what he was able to accomplish with Boyhood. And, uh, you know, the, watching it, I, I was totally entranced by this, the sequencing of this life and that these characters live. And just the way that we really, literally do grow up with Eller Coltrane's character. And uh, Boyhood is, is a true, true achievement. And I'm glad I'm able to recognize it as such. So my number four this year, best picture, is Boyhood. Moving on to number three. Number three this year uh, is previous winner of the best original score and best tactile effects categories, The Grand Budapest Hotel. 
This is one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite Wes Anderson films, uh, and and truly deserving of all the all the acclaim and all the uh, prizes and awards heaped on it. It features some brilliant performances from a huge, huge ensemble cast. Uh, it does at times suffer from a lot of the problems that that Wes Anderson's films do when they because they have such a big cast is that you don't really get to know as many of the characters and they're not as dimensional as they they might be able to be otherwise but i think grand budapest hotel succeeds in crafting this brilliant story around ray fine's uh hotel manager and uh uh what's his name hector uh who did he introduce in this movie uh grand budapest hotel um uh not gonna tell me who is it tony revelori tony revelori Ah, hector hector navarro is the name i think i was thinking of that's not who i'm talking about it's tony revelori uh who was also introduced and and performs brilliantly in this movie and grand budapest hotel is just it's everything you want a wes anderson movie to be it's kind of the best of his sensibilities and if you're a fan i'm sure you liked it and i i loved it i thought it was amazing and i was super just it's so funny it's so so poignant and so dramatic and uh, i think it's incredible so my number three this year is the grand budapest hotel which leaves two movies left we have two movies left uh whiplash and the lego movie are my number one and two films of the year. And in second place, the runner-up for Best Picture, previously winning the Kaffa for Best Original Song, is the Lego movie. With its second nomination of the year, uh, it, it has earned the spot. Uh, it comes so close to, to being my Best Picture winner, but it does not quite reach it. Uh, I talked about the way that the song Everything is Awesome combines with the film in order to really explain and go into great detail of just what what a social commentary the film film is causing and uh, or not causing but um, um, saying and I think that this is a movie that will age well in my opinion I think the animation is great uh, and I think the the voice casting is 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 fantastic from Liam Neeson to Chris Pratt to Elizabeth Banks Morgan Freeman as God uh, you know it's a huge voice cast huge voice cast Will Ferrell uh, as as the name of the villain uh, my my the one thing the one thing holding it back that I I've kind of fluctuated my opinion on as as I've remembered and thought about the the film more is is the ending uh you know the live action ending is interesting i i I appreciate what the film was trying to do with it but i think it is a weaker segment of the film as opposed to the rest of the film which i think is absolutely incredible the way that it adjusts and thwarts your expectations for a lego movie is pretty phenomenal uh it it, it truly is a a a remarkable achievement better than the rest of the animated fair this year in my opinion and uh uh, 
hopefully a film that continues to impress and live on and, and deserves it deserves uh, it deserves more recognition I think than it's been getting uh, you you have this critique of you know the everyman being special and I think it, it manages to subvert those tropes in a really interesting and fun way uh, that's that's suitable for kids suitable for adults and so much fun so much fun such a fun movie so my number two penultimate film runner-up for best picture is the lego movie which means that this year's best picture winning its third cough of the day after winning best supporting performance and best scene is Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, starring Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons, among others. Whiplash is a brilliant piece of filmmaking that features some electrifying performances, fantastic direction, brilliant score, and one absolutely uh, mind-bending, not mind-bending, but like... uh, Mind, I don't know what the term I was thinking of. One brilliant scene at the end. Uh, it, it's it's really, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I've talked about it a lot already. I'm a big big fan of Whiplash. I think it it it's going to probably be my favorite uh, Damien Chazelle movie going forward. I'm I'm really looking forward to his next few films. Uh, but I, I can't imagine any of them reaching the heights of Whiplash. It finds its groove early on and and never lets up. It is tension-filled and brings every single ounce of, of technique and skill that everyone involved in this movie has from the from the word go. I, I could endlessly rewatch that ending scene, and it, it really just fills you with with pride uh and and respect and it's it's really something special so for me whiplash is my best film of 2014 it is uh a now it has won three kafas this year which uh puts it on par with the winners from 2017 lady bird and war of planet of the apes both winning winners of three Coffas and uh, only second only to Mad Max from 2015 with five. Uh, I realize we have now shattered the veneer of me actually recording this in 2014, but we all knew that that was not real anyway. Um, additionally, uh, the only two categories Whiplash was nominated for that it didn't win, it was the runner-up in both of them, director and score. Uh, so really a banner year for Whiplash in 2014, uh, for its, for J.K. Simmons, for Damien Chazelle, uh, it really is a feat of great proportion. So we had uh, seven films winning an award this year, um, up from the six that won it in 2015, uh, and the five winners that we had in 2017. It, uh, the as I mentioned before, the lowest rated film nominated for anything this year was the water definer which has a 41 uh and 
the most nominated film that didn't win, Ex Machina, four nominations, never quite got there, didn't even, uh, its best position in any category was third. <clears throat> most runners-up without winning is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Andy Serkis, and the special effects categories both came in as runners-up, but it couldn't quite get over the hump. And uh, as you will see, that's kind of, I mean, he just, he, he got beat by Jake Gyllenhaal. That's all. Jake Gyllenhaal. <clears throat> um, I, you know, as I kind of mentioned, I, I've said this in previous years, but, or, or not previous years, but yeah, previous years. Uh, Ex Machina being listed as a 2014 film really does change the landscape of things. Uh, it was a 2015 film at the Oscars where it won Best Visual Effects and was nominated for Best Screenplay, Original Screenplay. But here it's up against entirely different films. And, you know, it's not up against Mad Max and uh, The Revenant and films like that. It is up against Whiplash and Grand Budapest Hotel and Boyhood and Birdman and Nightcrawler and Interstellar. Like, that's such a different feel. And I think that that really would have changed a lot of things. And, you know, that's just how my, my years end up bearing themselves out. So, uh, yeah, we had four, five foreign language films. If you When you include when Marnie was there, animated foreign language film. We had three animated films. No documentaries this year uh, making it onto the list at all. Uh, we had... Uh, the only one film nominated for both Best Picture and Best Scene. Turns out it won both of those categories, uh, which is uh, a repeat of 2015, as it turns out. Um, but only 2015. Uh, which is generally one, the, the categories that kind of line themselves up the most, I think, as I'm looking ahead at future years to record. But don't uh, just presuppose that that is the truth because you will make an assumption and I will try to make you be wrong. So, uh, additionally, I think that 2014, no short films at all at play here. Uh, no World of Tomorrow, uh, one or two. No Piper from 2016. So this is the first year so far that has not featured a short film receiving a single nomination. Um, this is a big, this is a good year. Uh, a lot of great films this year, uh, and a lot of fluctuation as I was making this list and figuring out who was winning what. Uh, we finally see, let's see here, we got director for Boyhood, Richard Linklater. Linklater wins director. That is his first win. Uh, we have lead for Gyllenhaal. Which is his first win. Already did supporting screenplay and score wins. So we are yet to have a repeat winner. <clears throat> no one has won two awards at this point. <clears throat> if my spreadsheet will load, I will see if there's any other data points. Um, the problem is I've tracked this stat right now, but it also includes all the nominations going back to 2011. So it's a little... But it doesn't have the wins going back to 2011, because I haven't done those yet. So it's a little uh, disingenuous, but uh, Desplat wins uh, with his at least second nomination that I've mentioned. Uh, Inaritu 
wins with his at least second nomination that we we are aware of uh, coming after the revenant and desplot coming after shape of waters nomination for best score uh, so still waiting still waiting after four years now to see if someone can get a second win and uh it may be closer than we think let me see looking at 2013 as the rankings stand uh, the categories where I track the people behind them uh, does not look like there's going to be a repeat winner but um, everything is subject to change at all points in time so thank you so much for listening to the 2014 Circle Film Awards if you go to the website now uh, and look at the Circle Film Awards tab uh, 2010s and the 2014 Circle Film Awards both will be updated to reflect the winners of each category and the records held by films from the 2010s decade. Um, as well as the nominees and contenders for the 2010s Circle of Film Awards, so the decade-long Circle of Film Awards. Uh, so you will have films like Whiplash up against The Handmaiden, Mad Max Fury Road, and War for Planet of the Apes. You will have Best Director uh, Richard Linklater for Boyhood up against George Miller, Christopher Nolan, and Denny Villeneuve. You will have Best Lead Actor Jake Gyllenhaal up against Andy Serkis for War for the Planet of the Apes, Natalie Portman, and Brie Larson for Jackie and Room. You will have J.K. Simmons up against Laurie Metcalf, John Goodman, and Benicio Del Toro. You will have uh, Inaritu and the rest of his writing team up against Greta Gerwig, Mike Mills, and Aaron Sorkin in screenplay. Best original song, Everything is Awesome, along with You Are the Beat of My Heart, Remember Me and How Far I'll Go from the Lore, Coco, and Moana. You will have Alexander Desplat going up against Hans Zimmer, Andy Hull and Robert McDowell, and Michael Giacchino. You will have Tactile Effects for <clears throat> um, um, Grand Budapest Hotel, right? Yes. Grand Budapest Hotel's Tactile Effects up against Blade Runner 2049, Hacksaw Ridge, and Mad Max Fury Road. You will have Best Special Effects from Jungle Book, Mad Max Free Road, and War for Planet of the Apes, now up against Interstellar. And finally, the Best Scene category, which includes Airport Scene from Lady Bird, Dinner Scene from Ten Cloverfield Lane, and The Sandstorm from Mad Max Free Road, will be up against the finale, final drum solo from Whiplash. Uh, so very excited to get into the Decade Circle Film Awards once we kind of once we get to 2019 and that's finished so uh looking forward to expanding that and seeing where films uh stack up against each other in the longer run thank you so much for listening to today's episode i tried to keep it under four hours and i think we're just going to be over three so uh, or maybe not maybe not maybe we're going to be under three uh that's pretty impressive for me uh, i think that comes from condensing two of the categories into one or 12 categories down to 10 and it's also a product of the fact that these are 2014 films and most of them I haven't seen for almost four years so uh, I have far less to say and talk about and I am sure that that bore out as you listened thank you so much for listening if you're still listening I really do appreciate it it means a lot to me if you would like to support the show uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash circlefilm for as low as less than 10 cents an episode. And uh, on an average month, you would actually be 
uh, spending, what is it, uh, eight, about eight cents an episode uh, for $1 a month, when most months have at least 12 episodes, sometimes more. You can also check out the website I mentioned, circleoffilm.com, to find other winners of the Circle of Film Awards from 2014 through 2017. You can check out the current nominees uh, for 2013 uh, and see where things stand in that sense uh, going backward. Uh, you can also check out the Circle of Film Awards for 2018, which is currently going on, and uh, see where things are headed. Uh, there's still a lot of a lot of time left in the 2018 Circle Film Awards, and most of those films probably will not live to see the end of the year. But uh, anything can happen. You can also find me, follow me on Twitter at Circle of Film, or you can email the show uh, Circle of Film at gmail.com if you want to share a top movie list. I'm always always accepting those, or anything else you want to say. Talk about right in. Do it. Do it. I love it. It's amazing. You're, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening one more time. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same night. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fails.